Hi, everybody. Stephen Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Hope you're doing well. So we did a, uh, a video uh, today, I suppose, would be the way of uh, putting it. And uh, the video was um, John Stewart versus Bill O'Reilly, the uh, truth about white privilege. I hope you will check it out. I think it's going to, uh, you know, it's strange. So, you know, we do something on Frozen. And we are just, like, lambasted, right? I mean, like, the hate ratio on the Frozen <laughs> video is, like, <laughs> unholy, you know? Hail Satan and Frozen! <laughs> so, uh, but the, the, the like ratio is 903 versus 56 when we take on Jewish slave trading and uh, black uh, responsibility. I'm just telling you, it is... <laughs> quite fascinating to be talking to the planet as a whole. I think someone pointed out, and I think it's it's worth mentioning just as a sort of brief follow-up to that. I don't think it's worth a whole show. but um. So, the Jews, not all of them, of course, there were exceptions, but the significant proportion of, I like these, like these non-statistically verifiable numbers, a significant proportion of Jews, uh, even up until the mid-19th century, were, you know, very pro-slavery. Because the Jewish faith has in it this concept of the chosen people, right? The Jews and the Goyim, uh, who are the non-chosen people. And according to some rabbis and Jewish thinkers, uh, using the word rather loosely, not Jewish or rabbis, but rather thinkers, uh, are, exist only to serve the Jews and so on, right? So there is something in Judaism that is a little bit closer to, let's just say, a dichotomy between the worthy and the unworthy. And Catholics, well, again, with some exceptions and some very honorable and notable exceptions, Catholics uh, did not exactly go to the wall when it came to slavery. I mean, they didn't even go to the wall until the pedophile priests were outed. Uh, so um, it didn't exactly go to the wall against uh, slavery. And I th- so somebody sent me a message, which I think is, is valid, which is to point out that it, you know, it wasn't just sort of white Western Europeans, which included a lot of Catholics and, you know, depending on how you classify, included a lot of Jews. But it really was the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, the wasps of the world, who were ferocious in ending slavery. And that there is, um, uh, I got um, uh, an email a while back ago from the head of the Independent Institute who was talking about how I needed to give more respect to Christianity when it came to ending slavery. And I think, I think that's, that's fair, and he sent me a lot of material that was, uh, was important. But um, it's not just all Christendom. Like, but Christianity doesn't have this uh, separation of like the worthy and the unworthy, because uh, uh, all people are created in God's image and, and so on. There's not this, and if you accept Christ and so on, which is, you know, can be a, a very quick thing as opposed to, what, 10 years of mind-breaking study to convert to Judaism and so on. There's not this division in Christianity of the worthy and the unworthy, uh, the sort of chosen and the the goyim. There is that in Judaism. And uh, so it is kind of ironic that an American Jew was castigating an American Catholic about slavery when neither of the peoples who back them down the foggy path of history were particularly ferocious in their ending of slavery. I, on the other hand, <laughs> have, uh, standing in the dim, foggy, no credit to me background of history, a whole bunch of wasps, uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, who were really key. And I think it's a worth 
differentiating that uh, as far as uh, historical accuracy goes. Uh, I, you know, actually, I did record a much longer version of that was take two. Um, it, there was a much longer version, which we decided to not release because we felt that, you know, over four, well, it was, uh, 40 minutes or whatever is a bit too long for most people. Uh, so uh, we got into more detail about other stuff in, in the longer version. Maybe we can sort of throw that up in the donator section or something if people are interested. So we did trim out. I also rebutted a bunch of arguments about um, why uh, blacks are arrested at far higher rates for uh, drug use uh, than whites. Uh, I won't get into all the arguments here. but um, So we, yeah, we did a longer version, and, but I think this one was worth – this point was worth expanding on. So I just wanted to mention that as we move along. But that having been said, it is supposed to be your show, Steph, you selfish, selfish windbag. So uh, if you'd like to um, serve up some uh, listeners, I will take a swing. All right. Well, up first today is Wes, who you may remember from the show last Saturday when Steph's battery died, midpoint in the conversation. So I'll just give a brief recap of what was being talked about, and then you guys can pick up where you left off. Oh, sorry. And can I just mention, Steph's battery dying is often associated huh? with <laughs> listeners getting the upper hand in a conversation. Um, so just, just for those of you who are suspicious, your suspicions are extremely well-founded. <laughs> good for you. <laughs> All right. It was a conversation about honesty when dating and the most efficient way to potentially find the right woman. Steph pointed out some possible white knighting for women because Wes wouldn't be completely honest due to a supposed weakness on their part, adjusting his behavior to accommodate their fragility. It ended with Steph saying uh, vul- vulnerability was a strength, but there was disagreement on that. Uh, a lack of vulnerability is a sign of being low on the food chain. And Wes asked, really? Leaders don't express vulnerability? And then Steph's batteries died as we were talking about leaders being total slaves. Uh-oh. Oh, again. Actually, it's not the tablet. It's just my personal batteries <laughs> that need to be. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually solar powered and it is October in Canada. So I'm afraid <laughs> I'm going to go pretty much into hibernation. So, um yeah, so you, you sort of feel like um, political powers and so on, uh, political leaders and those in authority don't show vulnerability, don't show weakness, and that makes them like kind of alphas. Is that right? Um, the Well, I want to make sure that we, you know, we differentiate between leader and ruler. Obviously, I'm not for rulers, as I know you're not either. But leadership, uh, which is something I have you know, a tiny bit of experience in, um, I understood what you were saying about in the case of if you're in a business sense where uh, you, you're vulnerable to your employees or the people that are working with you on a project or something like that, like, hey, we've got to get this done. We're under a lot of pressure. Uh, I like that example um, of showing uh, weakness. But I think we really have to define weakness. As, what do you, no, no. I didn't say weakness. I didn't say weakness. A vulnerability. Sorry, sorry. Vulnerability. Okay, hey, yeah. Come on. You're right, <laughs> you know, right, right. right. You know, give, me, give me a fair fight here. I'll give you another example, which I mentioned to Mike after the show. Oh, wait. After my batteries had recharged. But so I mentioned this to Mike. So when I was um, – after I finished my master's uh, at University of Toronto, I mean, oh, God, it was a horrible recession. I mean, just brutal. Like, I mean, I, I couldn't get a job as a waiter. I couldn't – like, oh, man, it was just – it was rough, 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 rough. And I was like weeding gardens, doing odd jobs, like just anything. And, uh, you know, as, as is the case, even though my rent was like 270 bucks a month for a room in a house with four gay guys and a lesbian, which was a fantastic place to live, by the way, uh, I just like I ran out of money. And, and that's 
normally there's something you can do. You know, it's like that song, uh, uh, we're in or we're out of the money. It's like sometimes this tide comes in, tide goes out, but usually, but I just like hit the wall. No money, no money, and no money. No, like, oh, the check's coming in or no, like, you know, even friends, I tapped out, right? Because, I mean, a lot of people in my age were going through tough times in, in, those, uh, in those days. And so I, I had met this woman named Marnie who, who was working for a, a temp agency, like a placement agency. And I called her up and I said, I said Marnie, oh, man, I got to tell you, I, I need a job. Like, I need a job so badly, it's ridiculous, and, you know, I, I got so much – I've been programming since I was 11. I, I, I know word processing. I'm a wicked typist. Uh, I know spreadsheets. Like just I really, really need a job. I, I want it to be with computers. You know, I, I, I don't care. Like I'll move computers. I'll dust computers. I'll stack computers. I'll take computers on and off of a van, just anything near computers. But I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely desperate. I'm throwing myself completely at your mercy. I'm – backed into a corner. I am totally desperate for work. If there's anything you could do, I would like be eternally in your debt. And so she got me my first professional gig as a programmer, a COBOL programmer uh, in a trading company. And I was that, – that's pretty close. To, I mean as far as I can remember, that's what I said. And uh, it really um, – uh, you know, when you show vulnerability, people will often want to, to help you. And, of course, you'll also reveal the sadists and cruel people like, uh, you know, like every time I put out a donation request, right, there is a, a clusterfuck of uh, cosmic a-holes who say, stop begging for money. You know, just begging. You know, they're trying to frame it like, oh, I'm, please, sir, can I have some more? A la Oliver Twist and so on. I mean, they're just complete tools, right, who are just trying to. Uh, frame it in a particular way that, uh, you know, asking for reciprocal generosity after I've put out thousands of highly educated, highly researched podcasts with tons and tons of experts and footnotes and all this kind of stuff, asking for donations is not begging. You know, it's saying be reasonable and pay for the value that you consume. Uh, be responsible. This is a show about ethics. Do the right thing. Be ethical. Pay for what you consume. Be an adult. Be responsible. I'm not your parent. You don't get stuff for free in this world. So if you're not paying, I'm paying. And if you're not paying, other people have to pay. So stop being a free rider. Be an adult and donate to the shows that you consume if that's their donation model. Right? So, And then people, he's begging, right? So people will try to – if you show vulnerability, and it is a vulnerable situation to say, listen – we need money. We got to grow. We got to eat. We got to right. And people would try to reframe that as weakness, and that's wonderful. That is one of the major, major benefits of vulnerability. Is you know, it's like the talcum powder uh, uh, over the invisible outline of the sadists around you. Be vulnerable and see who reacts with compassion and see who reacts with cruelty. It's uh, it's amazingly powerful. I got you. Well, if I may. Can I bring this back to the topic of MGTOW? Sure. I'll parlay it back. So my aversion is to being vulnerable and putting yourself in a position of vulnerability to the state and uh, by using the state as an extension of their will, uh, women, in the case of marriage, divorce, child custody, things such as that. So what do you think about putting yourself into that kind of vulnerable situation? Well, I mean, it's not – advisable unless you really trust the person. Right. 
you know, when I was, um, I don't know, 17 years old. Yeah, I was 17 years old. I went skydiving and somebody packed my parachute for me because you could save 10 bucks by packing your own parachute. <laughs> I wasn't particularly rich at the time, but it seemed like a pretty sound investment to me <laughs> to, to pay for somebody experienced. So, you know, I put my life in that person's hands and jumped out of a plane. And so it is, you know, I, I think what I love about the MGTOW movement is the degree to which they are alerting men as to the dangers of dick in a blender. And I think that's fantastic. You know, men need to have the sperm scared back into them because we're just photocopy, photocopy eggs, right? As we were talking about last time. And so I think it's fantastic that they're pointing out, look, if I understand the, the sort of argument correctly, it's something like this very briefly. Would you go into a business which would have you in debt for hundreds of thousands of dollars for the next 20 years of your life if it had a 50% chance of failure and there was a 60 to 70% chance if the business did fail that it would be your business partner who would initiate it even over your strenuous objections? And people would say, well, no, that's really not a very good thing. Uh, when when I was starting my business, uh, I remember signing personal guarantees for not hundreds of thousands of dollars, but you know some significant coin, and it was pretty alarming. But at least I had partners with me, and and we had skills and and sales abilities and coding abilities, so we were able to continue to grow the business. That's pretty alarming. But if you look at marriage as a business venture, which it kind of is, because it involves so many assets and so many potentially lawyers and law courts and laws. So if you look at business as a potential marriage, rather than the sort of male fantasy of photocopied honeymoon sex from here to infinity till your you know, penis is worn down to a tiny piece of shrapnel that then explodes into your nuts with lawyers attached, if you look at marriage as a business venture, which is what the state turns it into, then you need to be very aware and very serious about the odds. And I am for anything which raises our moral expectations of our romantic partners. I am like, I'm totally keen. That's why I hate the welfare state. The welfare state deteriorates our expectations of virtue, particularly female to male, right? Uh, women can go for the hot guys because they've got the state and the betas to back up the financial problems that the hot guys create. So they can indulge in crappy, petty, stupid lusts because they've got the state to back, back them up on whatever is going down. And um, I dislike, um, you know, Medicare or Medicaid and all that kind of stuff. I mean, for the reasons that they're violations of the non-aggression principle, but also because they reduce the need for moral action within society. They they reduce the rewards for being a good person. You know, I'm I'm sure you know, or maybe you don't, but I think there's a lot. So, last two years ago, I got a lump. Last year. Um, I finally had to flee to the United States, and it cost me some money. I had to fly out, to stay in a hotel, pay for surgery and the anesthesia, and so on. And people covered my bills. You know, people, people covered my bills. They covered my bills because they really like what I'm doing. They have great affection for me. They have great affection for the show. They wanted to continue. And that's partly their reason. And also they just cared that I was sick and cared that it was going to cost money. And they helped me out and more than helped me out. I mean, they covered the, the bills. And that was a wonderfully generous thing. What the hell do I need a welfare state for? I'm loved. I'm cared for. What the hell would I need that stuff for? Young people are very socialist 
because sorry, it's tangent time. But young people have attend generally socialist because it takes a long time to build up the kind of reciprocity that gives you security in the face of life's vicissitudes. Right? So if you have risks in life, in other words, if you're alive, you have risks in life, then you can either cover those risks by getting insurance or you can rely on your friends and family. And when people say we need a welfare state, what they're really saying is I don't trust my friends and family to take care of me. Maybe you hang with a shallow crowd. Maybe your family are jerks. Maybe uh, you know your friends are just into you know partying and looking cool and all that kind of stuff. And then if you get sick, they'll be like, "Oh, total bummer, man." Oh, I mean, massive amounts of like sympathies and stuff. But uh, oh, that's this rave going on, and uh, like, totally, man. This like coffin thing you got going on, this pale thing, this I don't know what the hell is coming out of your arm thing. That is like a, it's just it's down in my my high. It's harsh in my buzz. We're gonna go to the rave, but listen, man. Best of luck with whatever's got going on in your veins or whatever. Best of luck with that. But you know, it's really bringing me down. The little poodle in my purse is crying, little tears of artificial sadness. So we're out of here. And so if you've got friends like that, you you kind of need a welfare state. My welfare state is the kindness of strangers. I provide value as people see it, and I genuinely believe it's the best value on the planet. So people take care of me. So, you know, I give out generosity, and generosity comes back from a tragically small proportion of listeners, but it's enough to, uh, to get by. And so if you don't have a welfare state, then you actually have to care for your friends. You have, to have to, you have to put the social time in to bring people soup when they're sick and take care of their kids. And so you've got that reciprocal social net going on. With the welfare state, you could be an asshole to anyone and everyone. You could be uncaring, thoughtless, shallow, needy, narcissistic, greedy, you name it. And then if the welfare state goes, <laughs> goes out tomorrow, right? If the welfare state ends tomorrow, mean people, selfish people, empty people – they're kind of going to have to learn to be nice. And, uh, it, you know, and it's a bummer. It's a drag sometimes taking care of other people and then hoping they're going to take care of you when the time comes. It's, it's, it's kind of risky. I mean, the welfare state's kind of a sure thing, at least till the money runs out. But it's kind of risky. You know, your, your friends might move away. They might, you might give and give and give. And then when you need something back, it turns out they're selfish pricks. So... You've got to be careful, right? There's so much that has blunted our need and desire for virtue. And what I love about the MGTOW movement is the degree to which you guys are going out there, you know, slapping men upside the penis with an oar and saying, stop thinking with that thing. <laughs> because there are lawyers powering ungreased dildos in a dark corner waiting to drag you down to the pit of family court and put your ass through a cheese grater. Right. Be be afraid. Be very afraid, right? That the predator is inside the house. The ring of unpower is the wedding ring. So scare the shit out of men. I think that's fantastic. Then if men do want to get married, and I didn't really want to until I met the right woman, they'll really look for virtue in women. Because look, there are lots of great women out there who aren't tens, who aren't nines. I hope the caller from last week We'll meet one someday on last show. But there are lots of great women out there who are equally frustrated by guys running after the Sofia Vergara character, you know, the, the, the old curves who looks like she's been a Playboy sticker peeled off a 
trucker's mud flap. So good women get really frustrated at guys continually chasing after, you know, shallow, sexy, dangerous witches. So I hope that men will look at, you know, the, the movie Shallow Hal, sort of look at, look at the inner qualities of a woman rather than just the external markers of historical fertility and look for a woman who is uh, a, a virtuous, kind, generous, hardworking, quality, good, caring, sensitive, and all that. And then the risks go down enormously. But you never know. Oh, no, you know. You, you don't know. Sorry, you, don't say me. I know. Oh, one I, never my knows. My wife and I are going to be together until we're dead. Absolutely guaranteed. There's no divorce. Nothing's not going to leave me. I'm not having an affair. Nothing's going to happen. We are just here for the duration. And of course, everyone immediately, not everyone, a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, we'll see. No, no, you, you will see. And it just, it, well, I mean, we married for, I guess, January 12 years and together for 13. And uh, it's better, better every day. Well, that's that's your life, and I'm very happy that you know, you're able to say that about it. I mean, I, I would like for everyone to be able to, but as you said, you know, carrying the message that uh, there are risks associated is very important. And one thing you talked about just now was insurance. And I recall not not a couple months ago, you know, I was getting it before I knew about MGTOW and I had a name for it. Pretty much all through my twenties, uh, I was just, eh, marriage blah. Men don't need marriage blah. Like it just. A couple months ago, I was I was sitting in on one of those things where uh, they trick you into sitting in a room where they can try to sell you on insurance or something like that. And the guy was talking about these annuities that you could pay into, and they pay and all that good stuff. And the selling points was well, if you're sued, uh, they can't come after it. You know, it's completely protected under blah 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 law. And I, I queried him very deeply about like all the ways that someone could possibly come after, it. and he said no, this is solid. And then I asked him. Well, uh, what happens if you're married? Do you then get to keep it? And he was like, "No, nope. oh, yeah." But that's not suing, right? Well, no. But I'm saying there, there's really no uh, legal way for men to protect uh, their assets. Um, yes, people say, "Well, just get a prenup." Well, the problem is there's case law and precedent uh, across the United States where prenups are thrown out. Uh, it, it's really just up to the interpretation of the judge. Uh, what, oh yeah, and, and let's because I, 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 I hear this like on the Robin Williams video, you can see those comments. Oh man, he should have just got a prenup. Like it's magic, it's bulletproof. <laughs> you know, you are now invulnerable. It's like no, it's the government, which means it's all subjective, it's all made up, and they are playing to the audience, and they are playing to the contemporary prejudices and so on. It's complete madness. Complete madness. So, yeah, the, the idea that a prenup is going to solve your problems is uh, is completely mad. Right. It's, it's like saying, well, I didn't break the law, so I'm fine. Like, well, yeah, no, and, not necessarily, right? And the only things that could be in a prenup are uh, specifically uh, exclusively financial. Uh, there's nothing in there about child custody. That's all going to be up to the family courts to decide, so you're at their mercy. Um, obviously, you can't put in there, well, uh, any other obligations – uh, like you will have sex with me once a week. There's nothing in there that you could possibly put in. You can't indenture someone into uh, sexual slavery, obviously. Uh, so no, it, financial slavery, yes. Yes, sexual financial slavery, slavery no. Exactly. Because financial slavery is male and sexual slavery is female, and therefore there are completely different standards. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. And speaking of, and uh, even within marriage, um, anecdote uh, from my, you know, personal life, um, family. I'll try not to mention names, but uh, uncle, a very successful businessman. Very, very religious. Um, I come from a very religious family. I'm not one myself, but 
Uh, I do know that religious people don't break into my car and steal my stereo like someone has. So we'll just go with that. I'm, I'm okay with the religious people on that grounds. But he stays married to my aunt, uh, partly out of, I'd say, religious conviction. Um, very recently, he had a heart attack, and we were sitting around a family gathering, and my mother asked him about his scar or something like that to my aunt, and she said, oh, well, I haven't seen it. So if she hasn't seen he hasn't you know, seen him, his Wait, scar. they cracked his chest for the heart attack? Yeah, well, they had to do a bypass, bypass surgery. So he had he's a heart got one of these, like, collarbone to sternum. I don't know. I just know that he had surgery and um, the – I mean, that's that's big stuff. I mean, I, I've right. seen one of those before. I mean, it looks like they basically started to unzip you and then you just caught it in time because right. it's, so it's a big-ass scar. I mean, was, and also it's like they, they crack the – the rib cage, right? I mean, it's a serious bone sore, like Sweeney Todd kind of shit, right? So, right. So, so it's a big deal. My, but she'd never seen it. My aunt had not seen my uncle's scar, which maybe means that, uh, maybe she's big on scuba sex. No, probably not. Yeah, that's so they're I not think, having sex, right? I yeah, no, they would not be. Now they're, they're an older couple; they're probably in their fifties, but um, that don't matter. I know. That don't I know. Matter. Come on. I'm but, 48. Uh, you're, talk- you're talking to the wrong demographic if you're going to argue that. Well, you know they're they're yeah, 50. 50. All gone. If you can believe it, you know they 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 don't attempt to eat their porridge through their eyeballs. They they you know relatively willing to drive and actually look over the steering wheel. And you know no sex uh, you know gets better as you age. You stay healthy or whatever, right? But uh, right. But uh, you know he stays with it um, to his testament, and he's always been a very successful business owner. All of my life, I've known. Uh, they've been very, very wealthy, very well, well to do. Two story house, nice cars. Uh, my aunt, his wife, always drives a brand new, uh, lease BMW every three years, switches it out. And they started, oh, two daughters, uh, both went to private out of state college where they, you know, had okay, their I got it. They got some money. You don't have to keep eating me over with the head with the money bag. I get, they've got money. Okay, well, got let, it. Let me, let me, I, well, where I was going with that was not trying to, you know, be impressive or anything. I feel that he has fulfilled his uh, duties, as you will, of the provider. Okay. okay. So that's where I'm going with the story. And, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, at 2008, his business started taking on a lot of, you know, tr- trouble. I mean, he, he worked related to the housing sector. So obviously he was. 2008. I mean, he's right. not alone in that. Yeah. And that's about the time where my mom. You know, you know what 2008 was? It's a wonderful fucking time to start a podcast. <laughs> I'm going to quit my job <laughs> because I'm sure there won't be any problems in the economy that are going to prevent me from – anyway, go ahead. Never mind. Yeah. Um, about, around about that time, they started having quote-unquote problems when his business wasn't doing too well. Uh, but you know, they stayed together all through that. But that's when uh, my mom would intimate to me that uh, they had uh, – they were having difficulties. Um, just so wait, wait. Are you time. saying that the man ran into financial or career difficulties, and this provoked discontent in the woman? <gasps> mm. Never heard that. Yeah. Never heard that. No, it's it's true. You know, if often if you if you cut off blood flow to uh, a, a, an extremity, the the leech gets upset. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> so but somehow in that though you know he he managed to uh, make sure both his daughters finished school uh both of them got married 
uh, hugely lavish weddings. Again, not bragging or anything, but just we're talking about he spent a lot of money doing all the things that he's expected to do as a provider male. And there was this instance where he um, got in his head that he wanted to pay tribute to a childhood hero of his, uh, someone that had been very influential in his life. And he wanted to uh, erect sort of a, a monument to it, and it was his idea. But he was he was a social he was a you know leader in the town, and you know he was able to get a lot of funding together for it. But he was still going to have to foot a lot of the bill. So to erect this monument, he had to spend something to the tune of maybe I don't know eighty grand, you know, out of out of his money. And the level of backlash that from the women in my family, every single one of them. We're all against him. Sure. Even my grandmother was pissed at him. Yeah. My mother. Yeah, because because the women want the money to stay in the family, right? Well, correct. But in my yeah. mind, like they're, they're, we were driving in the car one day, my my sister and my mother, and they were telling me about how horrible he was for doing this. And I was and I'm listening to them. They're trying to convince me this is horrible. And then I, I retort to them, well, has he not paid for both? Like I asked him, what what do you spent the money for? I said, well, uh, he's got two kids. Well, he spent he put them both through college. Uh, they're both married. Uh, they're married with lavish weddings. Still living in that house. Uh, aunt still has brand new BMW. Wait, wait, wait. His, I'm sorry. His daughters got married and they're still living at home. No, 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 no. He and his wife, my aunt and my uncle, are still living in their house. I mean, the, oh, okay. So his kids got married and okay, they're so all, they're still living in a big house. Okay, they're like the big house from the big family. No, the the, the daughters, my cousins, they're out and living uh, with their husbands. They're, okay. They've got their own lives, own careers, everything's set. But just the level of entitlement that every single woman That's in my family our had. money, right? Right. And I, I, I couldn't I, – I argued with them on it, and I wasn't going to commit some of it. And, of course, hush-hush is the order of the day in my family. So they were like, well, don't you say that we said that. So instead, well, okay, I respect that. And I went to see it. I thought it was actually very, very nice, and I complimented on it said – I thought it was very good what you did, and left it at that. But I've I've had discussions with him, probed a little bit, but can't teach an old dog new tricks. I don't really see him ever bending. He he just walks around with a smile on his face and just pretends like everything's fine. So yeah. he's just yeah, going to live that life. Yeah, I mean he's just enjoying yeah, so, life. Guys. So what? See, but but what happened was, in my humble opinion, and this is not all women, but it's a depressing percentage of women. What happened was he had needs that had nothing to do with the women's needs, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right? So he had, a, he had a preference which did not benefit the woman in any way. And so said preference is incomprehensible to narcissists, mm-hmm. right? Well, uh, it's not my childhood hero. I would never spend money on that. So spending money on that is bad. It's like, but it's not your childhood hero, right? Yep. And plus, I mean, it's li- it's like I don't like vampire movies, so I cannot, for the life of me, understand how there could be such a thing as vampire movies. It's like, are you stupid? No, I guess just completely self-obsessed, right? Right, and, and, and he attribute you know personally his success, like his. Moral, uh, you know, acuity and you know his hard work ethic uh, to this person. So, 
the argument could be made that he was influenced to such that he was so successful. And all of their, uh, his wife and his daughter's benefit came from, you know, the line of that influence. But it's, it's too far, too many degrees separated for them to obviously see that. Mm. But I'm sure the women spent most of the money he made, right? I mean, women control like 80%, sorry, just for those who don't know, women control like 80% of domestic spending, like spending in the household. Right. So, um, so <laughs> it's, it's less money for them to spend for a need that they can't comprehend because it's not their need, which just shows you how, to me, staggeringly selfish an indication of a really stunted and immature personality that is. Right. And that just, that just serves – and that, this is my family I'm, I'm talking about. So these are the people that I'm going to be closest to, see the most of, know the most about. And this kind of example of female entitlement to a man's resources and labor, that just it, it doesn't really uh, endear me to the idea of making myself vulnerable, as you were, to uh, such a force as that. Well, OK. But, but let's, let's look on the other side of the coin, right? So were these women – stay-at-home moms did they like raise kids did they i mean did they volunteer in the community did they do stuff uh yes yeah, that way in clients okay so were, so yeah. i mean they worked pretty hard i mean obviously for the first couple of years then the kids go off to school but you know there's they're still working running a household and so they did that stuff i'm reaching here but you know they they, they weren't like just ladies who lunch you know bonbons and spanish so i'm entirely couch, right? i'm entirely with you on that i i believe that you know if you have uh, if a woman gives up her career to uh, stay at home, raise kids, uh, then she would be entitled because uh, she's given you up that potential to earning power. No, I well, don't understand she's that. Given up that earning, she's given up no, no, that no. earning potential. No, I, don't, I don't believe that at all. Okay. I, I mean, I, I don't. And I, I could be wrong about this. Uh, I've made the case. So just very briefly, she got paid for staying at home. She had a job called stay-at-home mom, wife, and she got – 80% of the man's money for that job. What happens if you quit a job? Do you still get paid? True. No, and we have plenty of opportunities of nowadays. Right. But Well, I don't, I don't care. Look, it's like me saying, look, hey, man, uh, okay, I have a job as a Starbucks barista. And if I quit or get fired, they owe me a million dollars because I could have been a rock star. And I, I was, I sacrificed my rock starness to be a Starbucks barista. So they owe me, man. They owe me stadiums. They owe me groupies. They owe me syphilis and tattoos and hair gel. That would be enough to choke a yak. So you owe me, you bastard Starbucks people, because I gave up rock stardom to make foamy, well, shitty lattes. Like, then no, I'm a little bit confused you, about. You got paid for being a, you got paid for being a Starbucks barista, and if you quit that job. So you don't give – if a woman's – how the hell do you give up something and get paid for doing so? Right. I'm confused though how you made that jump because at first it sounded – you know when you asked – like why did you ask what the woman – the women did? You asked oh, if they were stay-at-home moms no, and that kind of not, thing. It's not because I consider their money theirs. It's just that um, they did work too, right? Not, and right. That doesn't okay. mean that they – you know if, if in, in my ideal society – which is what I would vote for with my dollars in a free society, like how things would work, right? It would be uh, – um, I would get married to a woman, and if if she divorced me, then I owe her nothing. We, sh- we share custody of the children. 
And so we wouldn't be paying each other. And this crazy shit, like keep the woman or the children in the style to which they've become accustomed, that is just estrogen-praising bullshit. That is just so ridiculous. You know what keep the children in the style to which they become accustomed is? It's a way of women being able to leave their husbands without pissing off the children. Right. Right, because – because what happens if, if, if mommy gets kind of restless, you know, and is feeling discontented and crabby, and then she leaves the husband, and then she goes from a nice house to like a studio apartment on the wrong side of the tracks, well, how do the kids feel about that? Yep. They're not I have happy. total agreement with you. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, they're not happy. And so this idea that keep the children in the style – to which they're being accustomed, it's like, fuck that. <laughs> I mean, you know, the man has been accustomed to regular sex. Who's paying for that? Who's going to keep the man in the pussy to which he's become accustomed? Well, <laughs> on of, that note, of I that, mean, marriage, right? Yeah, well, on that note, marriage gives a man no guarantee to that. I mean, goodness, the feminists have eroded any uh, sense of you know obligation that a wife would have to sleep with her husband. Um, sure. my, my fundamental point of that is the... The contract, the social contract that marriage was, marriage 1.0, as uh, Dal Rock would call it, uh, no longer exists. And now marriage 2.0 is all the responsibilities put on the man. No, no, no. But, with, but you're – no, no. I get it. Look, I get it. But what you're saying is that marriage is defined by the state. Correct. But that's not true. The word, Yeah, I, I would say that the marriage is no, defined by the state. My, how is my marriage defined by the state? Are you legally married? We are legally married. Well, then, in, the, in some way, you are. You have a state-sanctioned marriage. Now, you can have a relationship, but it, it, then you go into you know semantics. Like, well, we're married. Wait, hang on. So, are you saying that like eleven years ago we signed a piece of paper, and therefore the state defines my marriage? You define the relationship that you have, but the word marriage—that's going to be a state sanctioned concept. Look, but that's like saying that because there's the welfare state, the government defines charity. No, I wouldn't say that. My wife and I had discussions before we got married about what would happen if the marriage didn't work out. And we both agreed that we would seek nothing from the other. Now, did we make a contract? No, because I'm not going to marry someone. Neither will I do business with someone where I need massive amounts of paperwork because that means I don't trust them. And we discussed it all, and I accepted her perspective. She accepted my perspective. It's never been an issue. It never will be an issue. And I don't know if the incomprehensible happened and we got divorced. She would stick by what she said, and I would stick by what? I said, and if I didn't believe that she would, I never would have married her because I had a pretty fine life without getting married. For me, it's a better life being married, but it wasn't to me like oxygen. So my my marriage, my marriage, look, I pay off the state, but it's like paying property tax. You, You pay off the state, but you still live in your house, right? Yeah, they own it technically. Who cares, right? Pay them off and forget them. So you, you sign your piece of paper, and, and I mean, I don't see how that defines my marriage. I would say your relationship with your wife, you and she define it. 
like the the relationship that two people have, they can make that agreement out of trust. But when it and comes to the piece of paper, the laws, uh, I, I gotta I gotta stick with my guns here. That marriage is uh, that is defined by the state. In fact, in some states, if you introduce someone that you're in a relationship with as your wife, they can then use that as grounds in court to make you officially common law married, say that you were to break up. Like he's been look, introduced man, to me as look, his but, wife. But this is but this is the MGTOW issue for me. This is the fundamental MGTOW issue for me. If you stare at the laws only, of course they're terrifying and ridiculous and absurd and dangerous. And the state, of course. Absolutely. But that's not what marriage is. That's what the government has imposed but that's not what marriage is, the commitment between two people to love each other for the rest of their lives. To, to say, you are my number one priority. This relationship is my number one priority. Right? This is what I, I got to say. I would agree with you if, you if you agreed to have a long-term relationship, cohabitation, but did not legally sanction the marriage. The problem then becomes if you live in the same place in some states, some jurisdictions, for a certain amount of time, you become common law married. So the state still sees you as being in no, I understand their definition that. I of understand that. And what I'm saying is that you find a woman who's an anarchist, right? How likely is a committed anarchist to invoke the power of the state in a marriage? Unlikely. This is what MGTOWs – it's like we've got this thriving anarcho-capitalist community, property rights, individualism, no state power where it all avoidable, blah de blah de blah right? And so just wanna... find an anarchist. It's like saying, well, I don't want to get married because you've got to get up. Your wife drags you to church every Sunday. It's like then marry an atheist and you don't have to worry right. about that, right? Well, why don't you think find an that, uh, this may open a woman? And you don't have to worry about her dragging the state into your affairs. This may open a, a whole tangent, but that's okay. But why don't you believe that – or why don't you think that people – or more people are anarchists? Why do you think that it's not as appealing as, say, being a socialist? Oh, that's a – I mean <laughs> that's – yeah. No, I mean uh, you know, just – you can look at my rebuttal to the zeitgeist debate for on that but but very very briefly uh, so socialism arises out of unmet childhood needs people want to turn the state into their family uh, in the hopes of avoiding the necessary trauma processing of a childhood where you didn't get your resources because socialism and fascism and communism national socialism all these totalitarian or totalitarian style regimes are about staying a child and having the state as parents, right, the military state as daddy and the welfare state as mommy take care of you. So you never have to face the fact that you weren't taken care of as a child. And to me, the neglect that children experience, if you experience abuse, you're more likely to go towards totalitarianism. And if you experience neglect, you're more likely to go towards socialism. And so for me, it's just all these unmet childhood needs. I'm sorry? Let me focus a little bit. What about uh, in terms of incentives? Like the socialist state offers a lot more incentives to, say, not work. Uh, or the welfare state, for instance. Would you agree with there? Like fewer people will work because they can make 
more money off of welfare or having you know being welfare queens than they would to go find a minimum wage job. No, but that's that's not that's not granular enough because if you're a very smart person, then the welfare state has almost no appeal to you, right? Because you'll do much better in the market. But market idiots, no idiots, dumb people, like people with IQs of like eighty-five or maybe eighty-seven or lower, which is a significant proportion of the population. You know, as the old George Carlin joke goes, you know, look how look how dumb the average person is. Well, half of them are dumber than that, right? And so, idiots, and you know, I can be genetic. It doesn't, you know, but but basically, people who are not smart are much keener on the welfare state because it pays them disproportionately beneficial rates. So you're saying compared to what they could get compared to what they could get elsewhere. Is it was an incentive then to support the state because they're incentivized as opposed to the free market doing as it may, right? Well, yes, but then but then you'd have to say if that were the case, you'd have to say well then, you know, rich kids at Harvard must all be capitalists, but that's not true at all. Rich kids in universities that are overwhelmingly socialist, more so even, in my experience, than the poor people. Right, but would you would you say that incentives drive behavior, or can influence behavior? Why? why I'm not sure why you'd even ask me. Do Do you believe that sometimes it rains? <laughs> I mean, no, no. I mean, do incentives affect behavior? No, this this, this is important. This is important. Um, I mean. I know, but it's also important that you don't ask me questions completely obvious that insult my intelligence. No, no, I'm not trying to insult your intelligence. I'm just trying to lead you into a trap. (laughs) Uh, No, lead me into a trap. Just don't do it so obviously. Yeah, I know. I don't like to see the netting before I step on that. Well, let me me just lay my cards on the table then. Um, I believe that the state creates perverse incentives to dissolve marriages. And that you you can have someone that you trust and you can have someone that – uh, you, you originally trusted implicitly, but the economic incentives to having access to half or you know large percentages of a man's resources can outweigh rational or you know loving behavior. Where they're like, well, you know, I can have everything I'm getting from them, but uh, I don't have to put up with them. So I think that that incentive exists. So I'm going to take advantage of that and initiate the divorce now. As you said, finding someone that is honorable and virtuous uh, can hopefully keep you away from that situation. But the state and its sanctioning of marriage, not the relationship between people, it creates these incentives that incentivize women to uh, disregard or discard uh, the men that were formerly their providers. No, I I get all of that. And and given that risk, if you are interested in – having a long-term relationship and having children, given that risk, you need to work extra hard to find the right woman. You need to have somebody who is uh, thinks for themselves, a, a woman who has integrity, a woman who rejects the initiation of force as a fundamental moral principle. You know, I talk about the non-aggression principle. I'm not farting out of my armpit. It's essential shit for your happiness in life. I agree. I agree with it. Right, because if, if a woman says... I reject the non-aggression principle and she is a virtuous person. She's committed to virtue and she makes the necessary sacrifices to be virtuous and to live consistently, which if you meet a woman who's already an anarchist and an atheist and a philosopher and a thinker and all that, it doesn't matter to what degree she's creative or what skills she has in the realm of philosophy. 
it only really matters that she has already taken the steps and made the sacrifices to be a moral person, then she has sunk costs into virtue, right? You, you know what that is, right? So mm-hmm. it's like if you wait for a bus for half an hour, you're much less likely to walk, right? If you wait for a bus for five minutes, you're more likely to walk. And so if you find someone, find a woman who has sunk costs, she's already made the sacrifice. Maybe she grew up in a religious family. She's become an atheist. She's taken those bullets. She's taken those hits. Maybe her mom's a school teacher and she's become an anarchist and she's taken those hits. And she has committed to virtue, even against the hostility or scorn or condemnation of those around her. Right? You find someone who either already has or is willing to sink costs into being virtuous. Because the best predictor of future behavior by far is relevant past behavior, right? Mm -hmm. And so if a woman has defied the religiosity of her family, if a woman has defied the socialist or status programming of her childhood and school and peers, then she has already given up comfort for the sake of virtue. She has already rejected the prize of social conformity for the sake of being virtuous. This woman will never use the state to take your money because she has already made the sacrifices. She's already shown and proven that she is willing to be virtuous at great personal cost. She is willing to place the fountainhead the Godhead, the North Star of integrity above material concerns, above the approval of the tribe, above the approval of the family, above even perhaps the approval of her society. She's already said no to taking half your money by the time she's met you. And this is why you can find these people. They are out there. If you wish to have no government in your marriage... Find a woman who has rejected the government. Find a woman who has already invested in virtue. And she has already guaranteed in the future by her past actions that she will choose integrity and virtue over material gain, over emotional comfort every time. And then you have nothing to fear. Anybody out there worried about me running for office? Mm -hmm. Are you? You should. I don't think you get elected. Are you worried about me? Do you think I'm going to run for office? I could. I'd be really good at it. Think I can't do a speech? Think I can't rouse a nation? Sure as shit can. Are you concerned about me running for office? You? You think I will? Yeah. I'd agree with uh, you. You come from a place of rationality, and uh, you speak frankly and honestly. I don't think you would abuse the powers of the state. Uh, it's a shame Do you think I'm going to run no, for office? No, you're not going to. Of course not. No. Of course not. But people like you not. should, but they won't. Oh, I completely disagree. That's a great way to neuter me. <laughs> if you want to be important in the moment and forgotten in history, run for office. If you want to be inconsequential in the moment but alter history completely, follow philosophy, espouse philosophy, spread philosophy. So – Anyway, that's my, my suggestions. Find the right woman, and there are very clear ideological markers. A woman who's a conformist is a woman who seeks comfort over integrity. And she will then take half your house because it's more comfortable to have more money. And she's not barred from such action by any moral scruples. 
I think that puts it pretty you, succinctly. Uh, I like that. Um, that is perhaps one of the red flags that you could look for. Um, comfort over what was it you said? A woman who seeks comfort over over integrity. Integrity. I got you. Okay. Everybody knows that being a good person in the world is a buffet of largely delectable stuff with the occasional shit sandwich fired up your nose by a cannon full of assholes, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you want to find a woman you can trust, find a woman who is, has been willing to suffer for virtue and who fully recognizes the non-aggression principle. Then you'll get a woman who's not manipulative, who won't lie to you, who won't hit your children, who won't threaten you. And because you are both the rarest of rare creatures, people who value integrity over comfort, she's not going to sleep around, <laughs> right? Because she's not going to find someone like you. Be excellent, be rare, and be incredibly discriminatory. And you can find the people you can trust, and there are very clear philosophical and empirical markers that guarantee you Guarantee you certainty in your relationships. Gotcha. Thanks, Steph. I appreciate that. Thanks, man. Appreciate the call. All right, Mike. Who is with the next upness? All right. Up next is Erico. And he wrote in and said, What is the difference between a deterministic universe and a non deterministic one? And how can philosophy shed light to an issue that seems to be restricted to physics? What is the difference between a deterministic universe and a non-deterministic universe? You see, you have already got a split, right? You already have a fork in the road, right? Like we don't say if we see a rock bouncing down a hill, we don't say what's the difference between a rock bouncing down a hill and a rock choosing where it lands, right? Okay. Uh, first, Stefan, I just want to thank you for having – all this valuable information available for free. And I also say that people who enjoy this free information but do not donate, they probably have no idea how hard it is to do what you and Mike and everyone there is doing. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And they don't. Uh, yeah, I, they don't. You know, if you, if you want to know what a great singer is, try singing along with his song and then listening to yourself back and like, oh, that's why he's at a stadium and I'm in a shower. Okay. So I appreciate that. It's very kind. But So I want to point out that when you start talking about a deterministic and a non-deterministic universe, you're talking about human consciousness, right? Sure. Yes, that's the point. Yeah. So we don't put on a movie and say, I wonder how the characters want it to end. I wonder what they're going to choose. And we don't watch a movie over and over again hoping that the characters will learn something and, and the problems will be avoided next time, right? Okay. But – Here's the thing. The end goal... Well, no, no, hang on, hang on, hang on. Okay, go <laughs> ahead. That's go not... Ahead. Right. So, like, you, you don't watch Jaws over and over again saying, boy, I sure hope that tiny-butted woman doesn't go swimming in the dark this time because, I mean, the last ten times I watched it, she got chomped up. Yeah, so right? you are we know that... that so, so that's deterministic, right? That sure. is, yeah. you know, can't change. So the moment you start talking about determinism versus non-determinism, you are talking about human consciousness... And nothing else, right? Yes. You don't, you don't wake up every morning and saying, I hope that my liver chooses to clean my blood today and not go play World of Warcraft, right? Okay, so let's say that it's possible to predict human consciousness. It's possible to predict 
human choice well before they are actually made. And wait, we wait, are not wait, aware. Wait. No, no, you, you, you're jumping quite a bit there, right? Okay, so I'm just trying to, to make a quick point. Okay, good. go ahead. So, even though it might be possible to predict human choice, we have no idea if it's possible or not. Because humans so far has have only been able to understand 2% of the things that make the cosmos. So if there are some mathematical rule for that will enable people to to predict choices, we are not aware of, of such a rule. But it doesn't mean that it's impossible. It only means that we don't know about it. So if, if people have only 2% of the knowledge of the cosmos... And, wait, wait, how on earth? And, where do you get the, where, sorry, where do you get the 2% from? Okay, so the cosmos is made of regular matter and dark energy and dark matter. So about 98% of the cosmos is dark energy and dark matter. And those words mean nothing because nobody knows what those things really are. They are only able to detect it because of the gravity dragging things around and pulling things around. But they are and so it's, that, sorry, it's the, it's the theory that if we can predict the behavior of dark matter, we then might be able to predict the behavior of human beings because we're full of no, dark matter. Is that right? No, 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 not, not at all. I'm just trying to say that. No, but hang on, hang on. The, is, is there, hang on. Is, is there dark matter in the human brain? Probably. I'm not sure. Probably. So it's it's like ether. It's like in the sort of pre-scientific world. It's it's everywhere. Is that right? No, I'm just making a point that ninety. No, no, I'm I'm not. I'm just. I'm genuinely. Don't get annoyed. I'm asking you questions because I don't know. Yeah. I, no, I I'm not saying that at all. No, I'm not saying that. To to me, dark matter is just mostly what's being shaken around in an anaconda video. I'm no expert on on this at all. Right? Yeah. So, so so those words so actually it, mean so nothing. Is, is, you hang say on, that is is hang on is dark matter infused into everything is it like everywhere or is it some discrete chunk of stuff that's elsewhere it seems to be everywhere and goes through regular matter undetected but here's the thing nobody knows what those things are they could very well be named the free domain radio energy and you could say that the cosmos is made of free domain radio energy and nobody will know what that means because okay so hang on so i have no idea what we're talking about now so you're saying that there's something called dark matter, which comprises 98% of things. We don't know if it's in the human brain, and nobody can say anything about it with any certainty. Exactly. Is that right? So nobody can say anything about 98% of the universe. So how are we making any statement about how the universe fundamentally works if we don't know even parts of 2% of the universe? Yeah, I'm, I, again, I, I can't speak to the physics of it, of course, right? I mean, that's all pretty, um, I guess you could say, opaque uh, to me. I, I can't speak to the physics. But if there is a hidden aspect of consciousness that could be dominating consciousness that I'm not aware of, that would be obviously interesting, right? Sure. So if Now, there, if there it is, could be the case... Sorry, go ahead. Okay, so if there is such a rule that so far we are, have not managed to detect because the current technology won't allow us, how are we to make a statement about something that we don't really have any evidence either way? Because how 
can human perception actually see the difference between a deterministic universe and a non-deterministic one? Given that we are we don't know enough about the world to to know if things are happen at random or if they happen by some yet no things identified. don't no. no 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 come on things don't happen by random yeah yeah of course no, come on I mean they don't I mean we couldn't be having this conversation uh, are you saying that the laws of physics are not stable I mean things don't happen by random by accident exactly right? so I'm just extending that idea to human choice. And I'm saying that we are not aware that human choice follows same mathematical rules because we don't know about the rules yet. And therefore, we can't make a statement. No, no, but this, look, first of all, this is just an, it's an argument called the God of the gaps, which is to say, wherever there is a gap in human understanding, and you, of course, are aware, there will always be gaps in human understanding. We are mortal, we are finite, the universe is unimaginably vast and probably fairly unimaginably complex and so on. Yeah. So there will always be limitations in human knowledge. We, we accept that, right? Yeah, sure. Okay. So you can't stuff whatever you want into the unknown. Exactly. Right? Like I, I can't say, um, I don't know, there's dark matter and therefore there could be square circles, right? <laughs> or there's dark matter and therefore two and two could make five. Yeah. Right? So you can't stuff... Some I'm not calling your ideas crazy, but you can't stuff some irrational or crazy idea into the God of the gaps. And the reason it's called the God of the gaps is it says, well, we don't know how this works, therefore God. We don't know where the universe exactly came from, therefore God. We don't – right? And, and we can't say rationally, we don't know how the universe works in its entirety, therefore yes. determinism. My, true, no, right? but my case here is that I – recommend suspending judgments for determinants because we don't really know... No, 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 but God, way. but listen to... No, listen to your words. You recommend suspending judgment because of... That is a statement of free will. Yes, and it might be because following some rule that I'm not aware of. No, 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 you, you, can't, you can't use what you're trying to deny. I can't I'm not use denying, the phone, I'm saying well, that... Hang on. I can't use the phone to call you and tell you that <laughs> phones don't work. And you can't make statements that rely upon free will to become an agnostic about free will, right? Okay, so let me ask you a question. No, no, no. When I'm, we're not, we, we've got to finish a point here. You okay, can't just sure. keep bouncing around like... <laughs> yeah, my like question will follow that. Crazy atoms, right? No, no, no. Forget the question. <laughs> we need to go back to what you said. Okay. You said, I recommend... My my personal suggestion no, is no, to no, no, I get, I get, I know what you said. Stop answering everything just when I take a breath. Otherwise, I'm going to have to inhale for half an hour before taking my next sentence on, all right? Okay. You said, I recommend, which means you think that there is a preferable state, right? Yes. A preferable state of truth versus error, right? Right. Now, if there is a determinist universe, if the universe is determinist, there can be no preferential state. Why not? Because everything is deterministic. And? And therefore, you can't have a preferred state. Why not? Because if a, if a, if a rock is bouncing down a hill, is there a preferred state for the rock to land? 
it's an incomprehensible question. Okay, it's going to yeah. land where it's going to land because it has will, no choice. The rock will just fall down the rail and we will make the decisions and we might have... No, 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 forget, forget you, forget, no, no, you are a rock in a deterministic universe. Yes. You are indistinguishable from a rock. You may be a complex rock, but you're still a rock. And so if a rock, if a human being acting is exactly the same as a rock falling down a hill, a rock cannot have a preferred state of landing. A human being cannot have a preferred state of anything. Okay, so let me ask you. No, no, do you accept that? No, I don't. Okay, so then we are different from rocks. Okay, my, my suggestion. No, no, you've got to answer these questions. No, no, no. Are we different from rocks in a deterministic universe? Depends Depends the way you frame the question, so I'm not sure how to answer the question. Okay, let me ask the question again. A rock cannot choose but is subject to the laws of physics which act upon it blindly, right? Okay. Without so preference. If the no, rock no, listen, has listen, the listen, illusion no, on, no, no, of no, choice, let me, let me, does let me, it make no, a I need, I need, No, no, I need you to answer the questions that are specific. I'm not trying to catch you out or anything, but if we're going to make progress, you need to answer the specific questions. A rock cannot choose a preferred state. Gravity cannot act upon it with favoritism, right? Correct. Okay, so a rock cannot have a preferred state when it is rolling down a hill. Now, the rock, so to speak, or an impartial third-party third observer may not know where the rock is going to land because there's so many factors and variables, right? Wind, uh, the bouncing on the whatever it's bouncing on and air resistance and whatever, right? But no, but the rock cannot have a preferred state because it is simply blindly following the laws of physics. It's actually following some very specific rules that people think that they are… No, right. no, 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 stop. Stop. This, no, listen. If you want to talk to me, we have to go one step at a time, which means you need to give me Socratic-style yes-no questions. Does the rock have a preferred state? Or can it? No. no. Okay, fine. In a deterministic universe, a human brain is a rock. It is following the laws of physics. Yes. It has no choice. It has no preferred state. It yes. cannot have a preferred state because it is exactly the same as a rock. Yes. Okay. So, in a deterministic universe, I think we have agreed a human being cannot have a preferred state. Yes. So, when you say, I recommend, I you are saying, you have, I no, let me finish. Let me finish. When you say, I recommend, you are rejecting a deterministic universe. Because yes. you're saying there's a preferred state called agnosticism or the truth is we don't know or right so you're saying there is a preferred state in your mind that you want to talk other people into accepting in other words you have simply and immediately and foundationally detached your brain from a deterministic universe and put it outside of determinism because the moment you mention or refer to or express any preference for a preferred state you have taken your mind out of a, the deterministic universe. Okay. So let's say that my preferred state do you, no, no, is do a you response agree? to the do, environment. Do you, no, no. Do you agree? Then you can talk. I just Because we have to establish some stuff here, right? Otherwise, we're just going to keep batting ideas back and forth. In, um, yes or no question? Do you, okay. Do you accept that when you say 
Okay. It's syllogistic, right? Everything that is subject to the laws of physics alone cannot have a preferred state. In a deterministic universe, human consciousness is subject to all the laws of physics and therefore cannot have a preferred state. Yes. And by subject to, I mean can't choose, can't, right? Yes. And therefore, if you say that you have a preferred state, Mm -hmm. you have automatically rejected the deterministic universe. Yes. But I might not not be smart enough to tell if I'm really choosing to make a preferable statement or if I'm following some rule that determines my behavior. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The moment you say that you believe in a preferred state then you are rejecting the deterministic universe. I don't see how that follows. Well, I can't explain it again because I'll go insane. I've already explained <laughs> it like five or six times, right? Yeah. So, Because so if you're I'm the same as... If, in, a deterministic, for, in a deterministic universe, you are the same as a rock. So let me ask you a question. Is human perception fallible? Is my perception fallible? Human perception is fallible. Is it? I'm, well, no, no. See, well, compared to what? Compared to can can you can you tell me how the radio waves from from the wireless network around you how that looks like? Uh, I can't by looking at them because they're outside of the visible spectrum, but I can certainly measure them using other techniques. So you will be you will not be able to even tell that the radio waves are there if if we're not for technology. So you you actually have to say. I suspend judgment about radio waves because I can't see it. No, no, come on. I know the radio waves are there because I can connect wirelessly to the router. Exactly. But if so you, I know you're they're there. And I know that I can connect wirelessly. So radio, radio technology, it will not make any sense to talk about having a choice in radio technology. But the only reason we can make a choice about it is because we know it's there. But if we were, if that information was not available, then we will have to admit that it's it's we don't have any enough evidence to tell if radios exist or not. Radio I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm trying to follow. So you're saying that if I bring like a pick me from the Amazon into my house and I ask him if there are Wi-Fi radio waves, he won't be able to answer, right? Exactly, because in his perspective. He never heard about it and doesn't know what it is. What it is that you're talking about? Yes, but this, but you're 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 missing what we're talking about. What you're talking about is a deficiency of knowledge. Yes. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you cannot reject a principle by using the principle. We don't need any other knowledge. We don't. It's not like well, this is a pygmy trying to figure out radio waves. There's nothing to do with that. The moment you say. I recommend, then you're saying there's a preferable state. Yeah. The moment you want or accept or use a preferable state, you have rejected the deterministic universe. By the, very, when, the moment these, these two words, I recommend, destroy the deterministic universe, at you least see? in your mind. Now, you can then say, well, I want the deterministic universe. Or I believe the deterministic universe is true or valid or we should believe in it because – or we should be agnostic because we don't – you are 
continually expressing preferred states. Yes, because I live my but life. But if you express preferred states, the universe cannot be deterministic. Yes. You have rejected determinism by expressing preferred states. Because from my perspective, the universe is not deterministic. But my my perception might be might fail me. So I live my life as if there was no such a thing as determinism. But it doesn't say anything about the fundamental fundamental nature of the universe. If I just say that I live my life in a way that there is no such a thing as determinism. It just shows that I have a preferable behavior and that I'm not aware of any other option. But you see, it doesn't matter. Because if the universe is deterministic, then it is predetermined that you will live your life as if you have free will and you have no choice in the matter anyway. Yeah. So... There's an experiment where people starting to measure some um, some of how human decisions are made, and they actually find out that people wait, make their decisions well before there's a conscious connection about the decision, and it's possible to predict such a decision beforehand, before it happens, by examining yeah. the waves inside the brain. So maybe, maybe there's some yet to be found rule that will allow us to predict human behavior. But we don't know about it yet. Well, look, those experiments are generally... It would be interesting for me to see those experiments before and after people have rigorously pursued self-knowledge. In other words, people have pursued therapy or, or journaling or some rigorous program, you know, hopefully with a professional at the helm, of pursuing self-knowledge. Because it, it certainly is true the vast majority of people are unthinking prejudiced machines, right? I mean, there's studies, they're even worse than, than what you're citing. There are studies that show people making stuff up after the fact to justify a position that it turns out they didn't even hold. Uh, you, there, there, there are significant indications, if not downright proof, that if you show contrary information to somebody with a particular ideological bent, it reinforces their ideological bent. In other words, their ideology is not only immune to counter-information, it is strengthened by counter-information. Yes, I know. And so, you know, and it's sort of like if you, if you continue to disprove the Christian or the religious person's beliefs, then they just say, well, this only strengthens my faith because it shows me what a virtue it is to believe against all this evidence, right? So this, <laughs> this is absolutely true. But the reality is that, of course, the goal that I have and the goal that lots of other people in the world have is, yeah, people are really bad at thinking. They react emotionally. They usually don't have a neofrontal cortex to intercept all of the impulses flowing up from the monkey brain, the lizard brain, the amygdala and the hypothalamus. And this is all very tragic. Yes. But this can change. If you see the brain scans of people after therapy when they've pursued a rigorous program of self-knowledge – self-study, and I would also throw in rational cognitive um, uh, development, like the ability to reason, the ability to be skeptical, the ability to refer to evidence, mm -hmm. then you will find that their neofrontal cortex has strengthened, that they are able to change the impulses or, or intercept, should intercept and alter the impulses that come up from their deep brain. And over time, the impulses from their deep brain change as well. 
So if if you look at it's like saying, well, nobody can run a marathon and I'm going to interview all these people who've lived on a couch eating potato chips for 10 years and say, well, look, nobody can run a marathon. Marathons are an illusion. It's like, well, if you only deal with the lazy, with the ignorant, then of course you're going to get results that make everyone look bad. But this only proves the value of getting off the couch and going for a run. It only proves the value of self-knowledge because then you can not act in automatic and unthinking ways based upon emotional anti-reasoning impulses. Yeah, so so the sad thing is, is everyone actually capable of such level of self-knowledge? No, no. I mean, look, people with an IQ of 70 or 80, I mean, seems highly unlikely. Doesn't mean they're going to be bad people or anything, but no. Yeah. So how how do you deal how do you deal with with people if they are the majority of people on the planet? Well, you don't have a government <laughs> because the moment you have a government, you have voting, which means that idiocracy becomes not a fiction fictional movie, but a documentary, right? So, yeah, you you don't. I mean, you don't have a government because I mean, one of the huge problems that happens with governments is particularly democracies is that the moment a particular group of people get the vote, you know, whites, blacks, males, females, doesn't really matter. The moment people get the vote, there is little more demanded of the leaders than the endless flattery of fools. And so leaders really have to praise and and pander to all of the prejudices of the majority, which are generally the average to below average people because above average people don't run to the government for solutions because they're smart enough to know that the government is really not going to be their friend in the long run. Dumb people do run to the government for solutions because because they're dumb, they're going to make less in the free market so they like getting more from the government. And because they're dumb, they can't understand the hidden costs of everything the government is providing to them. And also they're usually not paying those costs because with a graduated income tax, they're usually on the receiving end of the money that the smarter people are having pulled out of their armpits by IRS agents with chainsaws. So the moment you have a democracy, uh, people have got to go around praising the heroic single mothers and pandering to every victim group known to mankind and never having any truth spill out of their lips that might offend the majority of generally unintelligent people who are clamoring around asking the government for shit that will destroy the society in the long run. So, yeah, don't don't have a government. Uh, I try not to have dumb people around me. I mean, it's it's just not a good idea. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, the way democracy works right now is that people are elected democratic by by the majority and then once they reach power, they enact laws that make them uh they make them immune to democracy because they make themselves special. So they are elected by the majority, and once they reach power, it's really irrelevant how they got elected, because they will enact laws that will benefit them, themselves personally. Oh, yeah, no, I- idiots vote for the same reason that idiots do rain dances. I mean, the rain dances don't actually bring any rain, and voting doesn't give them any power over the government, but it gives them the illusion of power. And smart people recognize, they say, look, politicians don't sign any contract with me. There's no enforcement mechanism for having them hold their promises when they get in power. So why would I participate in this sham? Whereas, you know, idiots are like, oh, great, Obama's in power. Where's I get free gas now. 
at free healthcare, and you know, it's like because they're idiots. And so, but in, in the free market, there will be people who pander to idiots, of course, because idiots have money and there's a market, right? But in in the free market, in a, in a free society, there's no universal compulsion to flatter idiots because anybody who's smart views flattery as a potentially dangerous form of manipulation and usually an insult to their intelligence, right? right. And I don't mean sort of compliments. You know, you called up and you said, I appreciate what you're doing. And I appreciate that. That to me was not flattery, right? But if uh, idiots lap up flattery because they don't have any real ability, so they love the fantasy of ability that's provided by sycophantic flatterers aiming to rule them. But smart people sniff flattery like a dog shat in their shoe. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, I mean, how do you deal with the, a world of idiots? Well, you you free the smart people from the control of idiots through the state, and then in the long run, uh, everybody will do better. But, uh, of course, the idiots won't like it in the short run. Because, you know, part of idiocy is not being able to defer gratification. And that's why, you know, there's all these things about how this meme floating around among college kids at the moment, like, Denmark is the best place ever you know, free healthcare, free university is a minimum wage of $4,000 an hour. And it's like, oh my God, but this goddamn place, fuck, I mean, they have a 200% tax on cars. $25,000 car costs $75,000. They have a top income tax bracket of 60%, plus like a 15 or 20% tax on everything you buy. And the top income tax bracket of 60% kicks in at $55,000. God almighty. We actually have the same amount of taxes, except we don't get any of the benefits. Oh, right, right. So that's even worse. <laughs> it's even worse. And so, I mean, this is what people think. They, they, you know, idiots think there's a free lunch. The government, the government has all this money. The government pays for stuff. Let's go get some of that government money. The government has no money, right? But that, that takes a layer of abstraction, a layer of right to to even be able to observe yourself and wonder if you're doing the right thing, which is really the fundamental reality of free will, right? By my definition, I've got a whole series of this uh, free wills part one, two, and three on, on YouTube and in the podcast feed. You can go to fdrpodcast.com if you want to do a search. We have the capacity as human beings, most of us, to compare proposed actions to an ideal standard. That, that to me, that's all free will is. Because people say, well, what is free will? The ability to choose. Well, that's – since – if you define free will as the ability to choose and then you really try and figure out what the ability to choose is, you end up defining it as free will. It's just a tautology, right? It's like saying Coke is it. What's it? Coke. Oh, say Coke is Coke. You haven't added anything to the equation. But if you say free will as the capacity to compare proposed actions to an ideal standard, well, then there's the place for philosophy, of course, which is the ideal standard. There's the role of education and self-knowledge, which is to compare proposed actions, which means don't act impulsively. Think ahead, intercept your emotions, and figure out whether they're going to get you what you want in the long run, blah 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 And we're all, you know, my daughter was doing this at three. You know, like, um, um, I think I mentioned this the other day, like she um, – I mean, to hell with the marshmallow test where it's like you get one marshmallow now or two in 15 minutes. The other day, she she had had some sugar and, you know, we're really trying to help her understand why it's important to limit sugar. And so she she said uh, – I said, you can have half a lollipop because you had something earlier today. Or, you know, we talk, I didn't say you can have because that's very authoritarian. But we said, you know, here's what I suggest and here's why. And she said, you know what? 
that's okay. Like, I know I'm going to get some cake at this place tomorrow. I'll just eat it in two days. And she put it back down on the counter and wandered off. I mean, I'm not sure I can do that as a 48-year-old. And she's doing that when she was five. Or yeah, does that when she's five. And actually, that's the best way to predict success in the future, the ability to deter gratification. That's actually more right. important than IQ or any other test that I'm aware of. It's sort of related to IQ, but it's not identical. Uh, because you have to be smart enough to predict the outcome of your actions in order to be able to defer gratification. And this is why most people are not philosophers, because philosophy is really, in a sense, the ultimate deferral of gratification, because you suffer socially. You suffer the comforts of, of conformity with the tribe to buy a better world you will not live to see. So it's like, it's like heaven. It's like the ultimate deferral of gratification. I'm going to be a monk to get into heaven. It's like, well, that's kind of like being a philosopher, except you actually never get to heaven because you're dead and you're just in the ground. Yeah. So I think that's why people have a challenge. With philosophy, it's, it's in many ways, it's the ultimate deferral of gratification. I mean, Socrates was trying to reason with the planet 2,500 years ago. The planet is still pretty far from rational. So sometimes it can seem you measure the deferral of gratification in the millennia. So hopefully we can get that down a little bit with the technology we have now. But um, so yeah, I mean that's that's um, I'm very comfortable with with all of that with her. I think she's uh, got a great uh, a great capacity to defer gratification. Yeah, sure. And that actually scares me because philosophically we are not very far away from 2,000 years ago, except now that we have nuclear weapons and biological weapons, and so we are really just the same monkey, except now we can destroy the planet. Well. Okay, I mean, I, I kind of get what you're coming from, and I, I don't disagree in many ways. But I'll be goddamned if I'll let that continue. I will be goddamned if I will let that continue. I have, I am, okay, just settle back for a rant, because <laughs> this is something I feel pretty strongly about. So, But I am, I am so fucking sick and tired of philosophy being this, like, nerdy loser, you know, sitting around the pool with all the cool kids jumping in and out with their six packs and <laughs> shaved chests and this nerdy kid in a Hawaiian shirt and boxer shorts sitting there sipping his uh, girly drink with the umbrella sticking out the corner and uh, tape across his glasses. I am so fucking sick and tired of that shit. Philosophy is a kick-ass monster beast of grab you by the balls and shove you upside your human potential until you cry tears of wisdom. That is what philosophy is. Philosophy is a motherfucker of a dinosaur out to stomp out the bullshit <laughs> mammals of history. And philosophy is just this unbelievable beast. I view philosophy like the Hulk. I view philosophy like you know, the rock <laughs> taking a deep breath and, and pumping all his muscles at the same time. I mean, philosophy is a human being so full of potential, if he holds in a sneeze, he'll blow his abs out. And I'm just so sick and tired of philosophy being this abstract, oh, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Oh, there's a, there's a, there's a streetcar rolling down these tracks that you have a switch and fanging from a flagpole. And oh, well, people in a lifeboat who are going to eat and uh, starving and property rights. And, and what if you're floating above, above the world before, before you're born and who you do choose to be? And, and the, the perfect, oh my God, will you fucking shut up? Shut the fuck up and do something useful for the planet, you giant 
brained ass wipes of waste of human skin and lack of potential distractors from the essential progress of the human condition motherfuckers oh my god philosophers as a whole drive me batshit as far as that stuff goes they are the most essential meaty muscular i dare say manly although (laughs) i've been more influenced by female philosophers than male philosophers but they are you know hairy-chested deep-voiced, big-hearted, fists in the face of an irrational humanity, superheroes. And oh my god, oh my god, the idea that philosophy is just sort of, I don't know, it's an interesting abstract discipline. Or you know, people say, oh, what did you get your degree in? I got my degree in history. Really, my master's was about the history of philosophy. And people are like, oh, uh... I feel I should send you a card, sort of reading like, oh, did you study philosophy? Oh, I'm so sorry. How sad, how tragic. Why couldn't you have studied something useful like engineering? Hey, do you know why engineers are able to build shit? Philosophers, baby. Philosophers figured out the scientific method. Philosophers came up with the free market. Why didn't you go and be a doctor? Hey, do you know how doctors are not killing human beings now? Do you know until the 19th century, late 19th century, if you went to a doctor, you were more likely to die than less? Do you know how doctors are able to cure people and not kill people? Philosophers, baby. Figured out the scientific method, double-blind experiment. That all came out of philosophy. Yeah, you used to be called the natural philosophy. Right, study of nature and study of how to extract the most value and knowledge out of nature without resorting to religious bullshit or bullshit. <laughs> and uh, so, no, listen, I, I sympathize with you. Philosophy to me is the ultimate uh, superhero, and it charges and, and energizes me to no small degree. And uh, I have you know, worked hard, and I have obviously a bit of a gift of the gab as far as explaining things, and I do have these weird geysers of metaphors that occasionally hit the mark that that erupt within my heart and mind. But people should be like, philosopher, oh man, you from Krypton. (laughs) You can do anything, philosopher, man. People are like, that's Kobe Bryant. (laughs) He bounces a ball. Wow. Brad Pitt, that guy has nice air. And some pretty sick abs, man. And he can mumble and move on screen like it's real. Man, he is a good faker. He is a good make-believer guy. Let's give him all the money in the known universe. That George Clooney, he's pretty. And again, nice hair. And and uh, pretty. You know, we mentioned pretty. And he's also really good at pretending he's not George Clooney. Yeah, it's... it's- it's insane. And, and also for people that all they can do is kick a ball around and they get paid millions for it. Danica Patrick, those tits move really fast. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, my God. And, and people are like, oh, man, you studied philosophy. Oh, man, I'm sorry about that. Holy philosophy. Man, you must have drawn the short straw in figuring out what you wanted to do with your life. Philosophy. Oh, my God. I mean, why did you study basket weaving and get it over with? Philosophy. Oh, that's tragic. Oh, my God. Look, it's Jim Carrey. He makes funny faces. Let's go (laughs) photograph him. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, oh my God. That's Taylor Swift. She looks like an animated Cupid doll with a nice voice. She sings pretty and has ready, red lips. Let's go take her picture. Step on the philosopher's head because, you know, he's just on his way to go make us a latte anyway. He only studied philosophy. Yeah, so the tragedy is also that it's okay to study to be an actor, but not as much okay to study to be a philosopher, but people don't, don't even consider that they have to study to have kids. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, the, the real heroes are the, the great parents. I mean, that's just really all it comes down to. The real heroes are the great parents. Do you know? I mean, I'll tell you, I'll tell you something just between you and me and the garden pens garden fence and the rest of the internet the number of kids who said to me i wish you were my dad oh my god heartbreaking it's heartbreaking the real heroes are the great parents and now the great parents need philosophers they need the non-aggression principle they need clarification on spanking they need the psychologist they need the research scientist the neuroscientist they need i mean all of that stuff but uh Man, if you think you can be a great parent without philosophy, you are deluding yourself because you need to have those standards of behavior, those principles, which are inviolate. And you need to know why they cannot be broached. They cannot be abridged. They cannot be broken. And that stuff is uh, absolutely fantastic. Um, And... I mean, the the degree to which we look at stupid human tricks and mistake them for genuine value is just absolutely astounding. And this is nothing new to me. Socrates said this in the trial when he was accused of not believing in the gods of the city and of corrupting the young. Oh, there's an original (laughs) accusation for a philosopher. And he said, said, they basically said, what should your punishment be? And he said, uh, well, you know... uh, When somebody wins in a sport, like does really well in the Olympics, you give that person a free house and you give that person free meals for the rest of their lives because they threw a spear really, really far. He said, you know, he said, I I have been exhorting you Athenians for many, many years in uh, virtue in self-knowledge, in wisdom, in moral excellence, in thinking. A little bit more important than, oh, look, a spear went really far. So he said, I, I would take, I would take what, what you have provided for the uh, Athenian sports dudes. You know, give me a you know, free house. He said, because look, I've been sitting around here talking many, many years with the Athenians about virtue. It's kind of been at the cost of my life, my, my wealth, you know, I could have been a politician, I could have, I don't know, gone into business, bought and sold slaves or whatever, right? But instead, I sacrificed a lot of my income to talk virtue, which is a much more important thing than, wow, a spear, ooh, ah, uh, that's far. So he said, I will take that. And everyone was profoundly insulted by what Socrates said. There are some historians who basically said Socrates was begging for that hemlock, man. He was just begging for it. He was just being so impious and uh, he was being so insulting and provocative that he basically was daring them to kill him. And I think what he said, where he said, sacrifice a cock for me, 
and uh, basically this is a thanks for a gift and the gift was death and that was the, the traditional sacrifice for when you received a gift and this was a uh, the gift was death because I think he basically had given up wanting to live in Athen- in Athens uh, at the time and that's, yeah, can, I've can you imagine that. how ignorant people were at his time uh <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I actually can. Um, I, I can. I, I have these scrolling apocalypse of mental destruction known as YouTube comments to occasionally refer to. Yeah, to and, and those are the, the ones uh, that, that have been through the thing effect. Yeah, yeah, and, and they, they, although the Flynn effect, as far as I understand it, just by the by, James Flynn, uh, you could look it up. The Flynn effect is that you get smarter and smarter. Uh, he thinks that we've kind of hit the max of that, right? We, we've sort of gone as far as our genes can take us, as far as intelligence goes. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. But So, this this complaint that people are more interested in stupid, steroid-charged, idiot human tricks, this frustration that thinkers have at the way in which money follows idiot desires is as old as philosophy, and really as old as the human condition. And it is as old as the frustration that wise people have at people's addiction to pretty. Right? Pretty on the outside. And this is, goes back to the symposium, um, which is the four levels of love. And not have to get into it. But of course, the first is, you know, pretty. And uh, Alcibiades, of course, was very pretty, apparently, which they all sort of fell in love with. But this um, frustration. But I. Uh, the, the life of the mind, the life of what could be called the soul, the life of the conscience, the life of virtue, is to me what makes us human rather than mammalian. Because there are so many aspects to what drives us that are mammalian. Hip to waist ratio indicates fertility. Up comes the super jock rocket penis cannon, right? And, uh, wow, even features indicate alpha gene pool. Right? Tits! Eggs! <laughs> Plastic right? tits. Yeah, and that stuff is all... Actually, I found those gross. But, but that stuff is all mammalian. You know, it, it's shared by the peacock, right? You know, why is the woman's clitoris where the woman's clitoris is? And why are the woman's tits where the woman's tits are? Because a woman generally... It's, it's better to get pregnant if you have sex with her missionary rather than doggy. So the tits are in front. So the man can stare at the tits and have sex missionary and therefore be more likely for the woman to get pregnant. The clitoris is where it is so that she gets more stimulation from the missionary position. Blood. So our, our entire apparatus of carrying around the human brain with the mammalian body, the bald ape body, all of that stuff, it, it, it's fine. Like I don't, I, I don't want to have this mind-body dichotomy thing. My, the only real thing is the neofrontal cortex, and the rest is just a vehicle to serve the re- We are animals. We are mammals. It's actually something, because something my daughter has real problems with. She, she thinks there's people, and then there's animals. And when I say, but we are animals, she's like, no, we're not. Mm. We are not. She says, who, who lives in this house? People or animals? Yes. People. Yeah, yeah. Right? animals that are also people. Houses. Yeah, we make our own houses, right? I mean, go find a frog in the woods. You know, you don't see a, a staircase, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's just under a, it's just dug itself into the ground, right? So 
with my daughter, there's a distinction between people and animals, and I, th- I think that's an important distinction to remember. And so much of what human beings praise is based purely on mammal egg fetish. That's all that shit is. It's fucking mammal egg fetish. That guy's tall. Tall people are good hunters. They, they're tall. That's and- actually scary to think about. I was reading about the, the Red King Queen effect and, and to think that that's actually what shapes human behavior. It's actually very scary. Sorry, the what effect? The Red Queen effect. I don't the know. Red Queen theory of reproduction. It basically says that much of the human behavior is based upon the ability to reproduce and pass on the genes. Right. So a lot of our behavior will focus on such ideas, even if we otherwise ignore the other. Right. And and that wouldn't bother me so much, except that people aren't honest about it. And that's the only way you know that they're actually human rather than just mammals, is that the, the peacock, right? The male peacock has this stupid-ass tail, right? And why does he have the tail? Because, you know, I mean, nobody knows for sure, but the theory, I think, is that it shows his reproductive fitness because he can carry this giant-ass tail around and still survive, right? So there's sort of a, you know, but the uh, the the female peacock doesn't say, well, you see, his giant ass feathers represent extreme virtue and heroism. No, they're like, yeah, okay, strong guy. You know, got some feathery junk in the trunk. Let's get it on. Right, so that's yeah. what they're honest about that shit. And and that's that's all I want. But people really can't be honest about it. People can't be honest about it. And that's what bothers me. Because people have to say sports what's the word? Heroes. Sports yeah, heroes. Yeah, sports heroes. They're not heroes. I don't know. No, they work hard. Yeah, they work hard. Movies, movie stars, they're not heroes. It's not heroic to bounce a ball and throw it into a net. It's not. It's not. It's hard work. So what? Digging ditches and filling them in is hard work too. It's not heroic. Is it skilled? Sure, it's skilled. Absolutely. You know who else is skilled? People who can shoot people from a great distance. You know, like the Washington sniper of many years ago. Yeah, yeah, that's skilled. <laughs> you know, it's it's not easy to dispose of a body using boric acid, lime, and lemon juice. But people do it, and they hide their bodies, and they get away with murder. Skilled, not heroic. Not heroic. Military heroes. Military heroes. They're good at killing people. Well, they're not even good at killing people. <laughs> they're good at obeying orders. They're good at being told to kill people. But most of them don't kill people. And most of them who do try to kill people aren't actually that good at it. And so, again, just war and all that, we'll do another time. But military heroes, go kill that guy. Bang! <gasps> Look, a yeah. hero. Just following orders. Just following orders, right? And so if you look at the word hero and try to find moral qualities, moral qualities, you will almost never find them co-joined. Hero is that which distracts the herd from the necessity and value of moral qualities. Look, if we call enough people who bounce balls heroes, 
people won't have any idea that hero is supposed to mean moral hero. And and then people are just shocked when people like Ray Rice beat the shit out of his little boy. But he was our hero. Yeah. Because he ran and he threw and he caught. That's not heroic. I mean, horses run faster than people. Are they thus more heroic? I don't think so. Most heroic, the cheetah. And, and that really comes from the illusion that humans are different from other animals. So, for instance, there's the saying that some kinds of, of birds have have single reproduction partners. So they st- stick with the same partner all their lives. And then there was some genetical analysis to the actual children of those animals and was found out that one-fourth of the children were not really from the the same partner. So what is really happening is that some birds are looking for the best male option they can find. But instead, they settle with the, the one that will be the best father. So occasionally, they will sleep around so they have the best DNA And they will use the best father to raise the best they need. Right. Yeah. That's, that's, sorry, that's just, sorry, just to want to correct something I said, which is that I was talking about Ray Rice. He's the guy who hit his fiance. Um, it was uh, Peterson who hit his son. Sorry about that. It doesn't matter, but I just want to mention that. And, I mean, uh, single moms are heroic. It's like, I don't know that it's really heroic to fuck an idiot and get paid for it. I don't know that it's absolutely and totally heroic. To do that, I, I just I have it. I mean, Socrates is sort of you know my gold standard and other moral heroes of, of history. Uh, not uh, hey, look at that! I managed to coax a man into having sex with me who didn't stick around. Now I run to the government and extract money from better men and women by force. Look, I'm a hero. No, you're not. Anyway, listen, we got to move on to the next caller. But I really, really appreciate you calling in and. Um, Uh, great questions, great comments, and uh, perhaps we can talk again. Sure. Thank you. All right. Lowell is next. Uh, he wrote in and said, how do we determine the categories moral theories apply to? Do we automatically assume it only applies to humans? Or is that assumption based on another argument? And what does it mean to have self-ownership? And how does this translate into other property rights? Two different questions, <laughs> but, uh, you know, put them both together. <laughs> right. 42. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Is there any that you want to focus on, just in case we don't get to all of them? Um, I prefer to do the first one first. The first one first. I think I can go with that tautology. Okay. Uh, before, before I get into it, I would like to yep. confirm something with you. That um, things can only be true by definition or true by observation. Do you agree with that? What can be only... Oh, things can only be true by definition, by definition or by observation? observation? Yeah. Um, well, it, uh, definition is a bit of a broad term, if you don't mind me saying so. Um, because things can be true, things can be true syllogistically, right? And things can be true... Um, things can be true because they're reasoned out syllogistically. Uh, things can also be true, as I talked about with the guy around the question of determinism... You can falsify a proposition if someone is relying on the opposite of his argument in order to establish his argument, 
Sorry, that's a complicated way of putting it. So when the guy said, uh, I prefer that people are agnostic about determinism, he was using a free will, free will statement called I prefer in order to argue against accepting free will. I'm not sure if that's a definition or not, and I'm not, I'm not sure if, if syllogisms would fall into. I'm sorry? That's more of a true by definition. Because you don't but there is also true by uh, – th- that's true by syllogism too, right? So uh, all men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal is a true statement. Would that fit into definition? Well, technically, that's still the – yeah, that's true by definition. But the, okay. whether okay. Socrates is a man is true by observation. Yes, agreed. Okay, so I, I think sort of analytic synthetic or whatever. So, yeah, some things are, are true – Without empirical observation, there's no square circle because it's oppositional definitions. And some things are true by observation. So if you could scan the whole universe and find no unicorns, there would be no unicorns in the universe. Uh, but you could never establish that logically ahead of time, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. Okay. Um, so the question pertains to when you say uni- universally preferable behavior, right? You're referring to… I'm not sure what you mean by the universal part because you're obviously not talking about the whole universe. You're talking about a particular group. Wait, wait, what? Why am I not talking about the whole universe? Because then you'd have to apply to the whole universe, which again, it would have to either be... No, 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 no. Look, if I'm a physicist and I make a statement that is common to all matter, then it must apply to the whole universe, right? Well, technically, physicists don't study all matter. They study the matters they can observe until they find new matter, in which case then they study. No, no, no. But I study – but I said a principle, right? So if I, if I say a law, right? Let, let's say – if I say there's a law of gravity, right? Yeah. That, that mass attracts mass, right? Sure. Then this must be true everywhere there is mass throughout the universe, right? I, I want to agree with you, but there have been cases when <laughs> science has been updated because no, 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 wait, wait, wait. I'm not saying it, it's proven true, but if I'm making a statement common to all matter, then it sure. must be common to all matter in the universe. I may sure. make a statement that's incorrect. Sure. Right. So it, it, it's not like, but but if I if I am a physicist working with a definition of the behavior of all matter. Yes. Then it must be universal, right? It doesn't have to be. It depends on whether. No, no, no. I just I, said all matter. Yeah, yeah. If you are making a statement about all matter, then sure. But that's what I just said. Yeah, I agree. But because okay, I, I'm trying to make a, diff, a, a, a sort of a weird nitpicking where you have something like Newton who studied. Oh, sort of like if only nitpicking on were weird. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> where like Newton studied motions on Earth, where he had absolutely no idea how motion works on a micro scale or on a macro scale. But it could sort of do a really good job of everyday motion. Well, sure. I mean, it's but like then the, he wouldn't the, say that's a universal law of motion. It's like the Galileo experiment where he dropped from the leading tower of Pisa. He dropped an orange and a cannonball, and everyone thought they, the cannonball being heavier would fall to the ground sooner. And it turned out that they fell to the ground pretty much at the same time. Yeah. Now, he, he may start to work on more universal laws from that, but in that moment, he's measuring an orange and a cannonball, right? Yes. Okay. So, yeah, I get all of that, but they weren't, I think, claiming to say this is true of all matter throughout the universe. They started off with their local observations, right? Yeah. And I think, obviously, the heliocentric uh, model of the solar system, I don't think they said, and this is how, you know, all matter throughout the universe and all other, right? They were simply trying to establish what worked and, and accorded with the observations 
like the retrograde motion of Mars and stuff, what accorded with the observations in the moment. Absolutely. But if I am making universal statements, if I'm saying this is true for all matter, right? When they say, like Einstein's, the theory of light is constant, that is throughout the universe, right? Yes. Well, again, barring we, we don't observe any new situations where that's not true, then yes. Well, no. The claim is that it applies to all matter. Whether it does or not is is determined over time, but that is the claim is that the speed of light is constant throughout the universe, right? Okay, so when Einstein is making a claim about the speed of light, it's universal. Yes. Okay, now he may be wrong. Yes, but <laughs> because that one has to be either true by observation or not true, since it's not a definitional thing. It's not definitional, yeah. absolutely. It's not definitional. Yeah, so if they, if they find something that, is, uh, that we can see that is uh, f- further away than the speed of light could possibly have covered, then we have a problem, right? <laughs> it means yeah. that something's traveled faster than the speed of light, and we're all in Tachyon Universe, and finally we can join Captain James T. Kirk in banging nine-headed aliens up against the wall of the Enterprise. But uh, So, okay, uh, so I'm with you about all of this. So when you say... So then my, co- my concern then is this. When you, UPB then has to be applied to everything, literally everything. No. No? Well, I'm not sure what everything means there. It's universally preferable behavior. Yes. Which means it must apply universally to the behavior of beings who are capable of preference. Sure. So that's not everything. That's human well, beings. Yeah, right? that's everything that can choose to behave one way. Yeah, which will, could which be space includes, aliens, but let's just say yeah. people for now because we've got no, no well, observations. There's no reason possible. to restrict it to people. We also have animals. Well, that kind of thing. No, 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 no. Uh, because I, I wouldn't say that uh, animals uh, are capable of preferable means to me not frogs like shelter. Preferable to me is, as I talked about with the free will guy, a preferable is being able to compare proposed actions to an ideal standard, which is a uniquely human capacity. Well, how do you do that to uniquely human capacity? Certainly, um, animals can learn, which suggests they have some level of capability to compare one thing to the other and then make conclusions. To an ideal standard, because an ideal standard would require language. It isn't and particularly yeah. pati- no, particularly a language of concepts. Define language then, because language animals communicate. They may not yeah, use language, they but they communicate. But they don't have a language of concepts. They don't have words that indicate concepts. We can't measure that. We have some indication. We know they have I mean, some no, some no, ways to set ideas in your <laughs> not, mind. Not a lot of not a lot of books of analytical philosophy are produced by the bonobo monkey tribes, right? We have some ways of measuring it. Um, and what way would that be? Sure, they haven't produced a book, but that doesn't mean they don't have an internal representation of the outside world. Okay, but I'm not talking about an internal representation of an outside world. I'm talking about measurable demonstrative language. That is conceptual. So language then is the basis on which UPB is applied. Well, see, I'm not sure that you're listening very well, if you don't mind me saying so. Okay. So universally preferable behavior is universal in that it's not right to murder on Mars any more than it is in Philadelphia, right? Right? If you break Earth's orbit, moral rules don't change. So it's universal. And the reason for that is that logic is universal. Sure. Right, if if you like two and two make four doesn't change on Jupiter or here. In fact, you'd never get to Jupiter if you thought it did, right? Because you wouldn't know how much fuel to put in the spaceship. 
I don't take the two plus two to equal four thing because it that's actually true by definition. Okay. Yeah. Okay, but there is no place in the universe that's, that I can imagine where all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal, but not apply. Sure. Okay, so that's universal. Yeah. So uh, UPB applies to universally to all beings capable of comparing proposed actions to ideal standards. But how do we measure that? Then is the question. How do we measure well, that, who, hang on, what hang on. is capable? That's, that's, no, but that's the last word is what? Behavior. And that's how we measure it, which is why you say, well, there could be some internal – maybe bonobo monkeys are psychically transmitting all the most amazing philosophy back and forth to each other. But because I'm an empiricist first and foremost, because philosophy derives from empiricism and we only have concepts because of the stability of matter, cells, and atoms, so I'm an empiricist. So – you can't create a magical god of the gaps where anything could be occurring. Maybe they're composing symphonies better than Mozart, you know, while they pick ticks out of each other's back and they just know. But that's all just made up shit until you can show me some empirical evidence, right? I agree, but I'm, I'm saying how do you measure that claim, then is the question. Which claims? The claim that um, you need to know that it can measure to an objective sort of Oh my stand. god, do you have an input? What did I say? <laughs> How do how do you measure it? Um, Look, you, I can't, you said, I can't yeah, repeat we, myself no, and call wait. it a conversation, huh? right? What did I say? No, you I'm said not saying, yeah, we, we haven't observed them do something that suggests. But I, no, I, no, I, no, I in no, fact, no, no. listen. Yeah. I'm not asking you to agree with me. I'm just asking you because I don't want to repeat it for the third time. What did I say about how you measure it? Um, you observed them. <laughs> well, that's not. I know. It is specifically language that denotes concepts. Because an ideal standard is a concept, right? Yes. And so if there's no evidence that the creatures are able or, or possess a language that involves ideal concepts or just concepts, then ethics, uh, universal preferable behavior does not apply to them. But in my because argument, is any, form Sorry, of, any form of learning requires being able to conceptualize. Any form of learning? Yeah. Oh, come on. Oh, come on. <laughs> I mean, you know, bees can do a dance that tells the other bees where the pollen is. Are you saying that they're philosophizing? That isn't learning. The other – what? It's not learning. Okay. So then are we just doing a tautology? So you're saying all forms of learning involve concepts? Yes. Okay. Fine. And we, have, we know through human experience that people have trained dogs to perform new actions that they previously couldn't perform. Right. And are you saying that the dogs then have a language that they can – are you saying that the dogs have a language that they can express concepts using? I'm not saying they have language. I'm saying they can learn. And if learning requires being able to conceptualize, then it does require that they're able to conceptualize whether we understand what that is or not. So you're saying that any animal that can be trained is the same as a philosophizing human being, a reasoning and conceptual human being? No, I, do, I didn't say they had some capacity to conceptualize as human beings, but they have some level. And even within human beings, there are different capacities to conceptualize. Even within but how do – oh my god, man. Have you ever trained a dog? Nope. How do you train a dog? Um, you, you allow it well, – you um, perform certain actions because it to perform order actions, and then you reward it when it performs the actions you want. Okay. You reward it. 
Yes. See, that's not conceptual, right? You're not arguing that the, the dog should not hunt the rabbit because the rabbit has feelings and it's immoral to harm, right? Bad dog, good dog, right? That's not conceptual. That's simply... Pavlovian. That's just training the, the nervous system to react positively or negatively to certain, certain stimuli. But it requires. You might as well run an electric current through a jellyfish and call it a philosopher. No, it requires the dog to be able to make a connection between two different and obviously unconnected things to be able to come to the conclusion to perform those actions when certain actions by the human is performed. Oh my God, but you've never trained a dog? No. But you, you know how dog training works? Yeah, I've read about it. Okay, so it can't be conceptual if it's here's a reward, here's a treat if you do this, and then the dog associates doing that with getting a treat, right? That's not conceptual. And it's not conceptual if you swat the dog on the butt with a rolled up newspaper or say, bad dog. That's not conceptual. That is really at the level of sense perception. You simply... It's called training, not reasoning, not debating, not arguing. It's called training because you're conditioning the dog to perform certain actions because you give that dog a reward. And so it associates the actions with the reward and will pursue the actions in the hopes of getting the reward. Said behavior also works with chickens. Yeah, and those actions require to be able to process those students somehow and figure out that they're connected at least when it comes to you performing an action when they're obviously Oh, come not. on. No, they're not figuring anything out. All animals pursue that which is pleasurable and avoid that which is painful. That's not conceptual. Yeah, I'm not saying that's conceptual, but the ability to connect two ideas is. No, no, they're not ideas. A chicken has a brain approximately the size of my fingernail. It's quite a bit smaller than the human wetware. It's not conceptual. It's behavioral conditioning. It's not conceptual. It's not like you're debating the dog and saying, you know, I, as the owner of you, I give you lots of food. I rub your belly, don't I? Here's a nice belly rub. I do lots of nice things for you, dog. I would like to enter into you a social contract wherein I do lots of nice things for you, and it would be very nice if you reciprocated because I have feelings too and did lots of nice things for me. So roll over, <laughs> right? That's not how you train a dog. That's how you bore a dog, right? Sure. You train a dog by saying, if you know, roll over, and you show it, and you help the dog roll over, and then you give it a treat, and you keep doing that till the dog does what you want, right? So that requires no capacity for conception. No, because you're not, you are not training the dog by appealing to the dog's conceptual ability. You're training the dog by appealing to the fact that dogs like certain foods. I mean, they don't, uh, they don't reason with, with the dolphins. They don't say, listen. But then that's just we, we charge, we charge, hang on. They don't say, listen, man. Listen, dolphin. We charge people to come in and watch you do these jumps. Now, I know you don't necessarily like being in this little pond. You like to be out in the open ocean. So let's you and us make a deal, right? After you eat 5,000 pieces of fish, we will set you free. Is that, is that okay with you? No, that's not how – it's not how they train a dolphin. They train a dolphin by do some shit, here's some fish. They're not entering into a contract with dolphins. Dolphins don't have agents. 
right? They don't review the contract and come back with counteroffers. They don't work for money. It's like jump, fish. <laughs> That's it. It's no no concepts involved. Well, I have to say, I, I, I guess we, we just don't agree on that, and I guess it's not an exchange of mind. No, that's, that's not To say there's answer. no concept involved means then the ability to connect ideas doesn't require being able to conceptualize at all. Okay. You keep using the word ideas. Yeah, because one, you have the action that the dog performs and the thing that the dog receives. Those are two different things. Right. So if and for the dog, I, look, but why why do chickens why do chickens peck in the dirt? Because that's where the food is. I mean, why, why do ants pull a piece of sausage back to the anthill, all coordinated and pulling in the same way? It's not. They're not going to unionize. They're, I mean, they're just they're doing what they do because it maxi- maximizes their pleasure and it minimizes their pain. Um. Then that would mean they would be able to. At least figure out that some things maximize pains and some things minimize. Cause and effect. Yes, animals can do cause and effect. If they didn't, they wouldn't be alive. Right? So animals, what do they want to do? They want to have sex. They want to not get eaten. And they want to eat so they can have sex again in the future. That's what they do. All animals pursue pleasure and avoid pain. If they weren't able to do that, in other words, if they did that, enthusiastically which damaged them and avoided enthusiastically that which helped either them survive or their genes reproduce or both, they would not survive. To be alive means that you pursue a preferred state and avoid a negative state. That is what life is and that's how life exists and grows and evolves. So, of course, all animals, all that is alive has some concept of a preferred state and some concept of a negative state or some way of enacting that behavior. Yes. So, but, but that's, that's not to say that, that they're able to process concepts and moral philosophy and social contracts and reciprocal obligations and empathy and all the other stuff that goes into moral reasoning. There is a difference, though. In, I mean, certainly I would agree that humans have a much higher capacity for processing just same types of information, but certainly it differs from, again, between animals and different one species and another, and even between humans. And I, again, I guess we're going to have to disagree because you don't think it necessarily needs them to internalize anything to be able to make cause and effect connections. But I think if they can't internalize, then it could all be biological and they don't really have to because you have stuff like bacteria, which doesn't internalize anything. That's just a purely biological or at least chem- chemical effect that causes them to act one way or the other. Okay, but w- w- we get back to where you said human beings have more of a capacity. Yes. No, I don't see that there's any support for that in biology. Human beings are not better at analytical philosophy than dogs are. Right? Like, dogs have a better sense of smell than human beings, but both human beings and dogs can smell, right? Yes. But bats have the capacity to navigate through sonar, which I don't believe human beings can do at all. I guess maybe you could yell in a cave, and if you got really experienced, you'd get used to the echoes or something like that. But it's not like human beings – it's not like fish are better at breathing underwater than human beings. Human beings, unaided, cannot breathe underwater, right? It's it's a functionally different capacity. Right, I mean, mammals are not just better at internally regulating their temperatures 
then lizards, lizards can't do it at all. So I don't think it's reasonable to say that human beings are better at these analytical or abstract or conceptual capacities than other animals. It's it's not – they don't have this capacity. It doesn't mean that they don't have affection. It doesn't mean that they don't have attachment. It doesn't mean that they can't put together cause and effect. Of course they can. They're animals. They would, wouldn't be alive if they couldn't, right? Well, it doesn't again, mean that they don't the have preferred it, states. It could just be purely chemical, as in chemi- chemistry or biology. That Sorry, what could them. be purely chemical? Like you have the ant that move that's just purely biology working its way through. They don't really think. They don't conceptualize anything. I mean, if you're stepping on them, they'll still keep acting the same way unless – Again. Okay, so we agree. Look, ants don't conceptualize. I'm, I'm no, with not you at on all. that. I'm just not but then sure. you have okay. things like dogs that certainly respond to the signals and over time learn to adapt to different environments. Dogs are smarter than ants. Absolutely. Dogs are smarter than ants. I mean, that's not much of a debate, right? Yes. But that doesn't mean that they're like human beings but less. Like, dogs are not only half as good at people as philo- at philosophizing. Right, dogs are not like even five percent as good. Like, wow, that dog is really not a very good philosopher compared to a person. Right? I mean, that's just not not the way it works. I mean, somebody with an IQ of sixty is not a good philosopher, or probably able to philosophize at all, and that's still infinitely smarter than a dog. Right? Well, I want to agree with you, but we have no way to measure that, which is why I'm sort of hesitant. Sure, we do. Sure, we do. It. I told you. <laughs> I could tell you for the fifth time, if you like, through empirical evidence, through looking at the dog's capacity for conceptual language. So, so which, which is why I'm saying, well, then we look at language, right? Conceptual Conceptual language. language. I mean, whales to- have songs, right? I mean, you could say that the, the dance of the bees saying where the pollen is is a kind of language. It communicates information, geographical information, I suppose. But it's conceptual language that is the key. What's the fundamental difference between conceptual language and language? Are you saying you don't know what a concept is? I'm not trying to be insulting. I'm just trying to really understand what what you mean. Um, I know what a concept is, but… But you know what the difference is, right? No, no, no. no, One one of them has concepts and one of them doesn't, right? No, no. no. All concepts… You you have the one-to-one concepts like a chair, which is a one-to-one concept, and then you have the more complex Wait, 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 wait. Hang on, hang on. What is, a, what is a one-to-one concept? It's sort of like the linguist thing where there's something in the real world and we conceptualize in our mind as an idea. Like a chair, we know what a chair is, but we have the word chair in our mind and when we speak it, everyone sort of gets the image of it in their mind. So that's a, a one-to-many because it's, it, we have synthesized the essence of a chair, we've abstracted it, and now we can apply it to new chairs that we haven't even seen, right? Sure. And, and we can describe it. Because a dog can hunt a rabbit that it's never seen before because it knows yeah, it's and it can a rabbit. Figure out, yeah, it can figure out it's a rabbit even if it's slightly Yeah, in different. fact, if it, if it couldn't, it, it wouldn't be alive because yes. then, right, if it didn't know, oh my, what's that fuzzy thing, right? <laughs> it must be a fur glove. I think I will go and masturbate with it, right? So it wouldn't, it wouldn't be alive if it couldn't figure that stuff out. But there has to be a conceptual language to describe what has been learned, right? Which is why I keep insisting that then it's language because we don't – because communication, of course, we can't communicate rabbits or dogs or whatever. But if we could, or at least if we could measure brain activity and figure out if they do sort of make disconnections, then we could figure it out. But as far as it is now, we, there's no 
at least I haven't found any research that has looked into... But there would be no... Sorry to interrupt, but if you're, are you saying that dogs could have conceptual language that we're not aware of? I'm not saying conceptual language, but some, at least they have to have some conception, because again, they have, they have to recognize a rabbit, even if it's different from every other rabbit they've ever hunted. Right, so right, but that's why I'm saying there has to be the conceptual language to describe it. So not, not, not so you, I guess the, the reason why I'm really nitpicking is because then it's like, well, it's not necessarily to be able to internalize those concepts or to be able to communicate it. That's the focus of what UPB applies to. Yeah. So until we can communicate with animals, at least... No, we won't some, be able to communicate with animals. Look, are you saying that there's some I, massive capacity I, I, in animals? Hang on, hang on, hang on. Are you saying that there's some massive capacity in animals that has simply been developed in their brains but has remained unexpressed in their capacity for language. I'm, because that makes no sense. Um, I'm not underrepresented on this, but I think I've seen um, a documentary where a lady had a... I think it's a... I'm not sure what type of monkey or maybe it's a bonobo. I'm not sure. that I think she was teaching sign language. Right. And, and you know, I've, I've heard various... You know, it's true, it's not true stuff about monkeys or apes. There was Coco the gorilla, and I think it turned out to be mostly a, a scam or a sham or whatever. But and, and there, look, there will be some rudimentary capacity for apes to probably sign for, you know, I want a banana, right? Sure. But that's not conceptual. That's pointing. You know, babies can point. I think we're, we're the only species that points. But babies can point at things they want. That doesn't mean that they have conceptual language. Which is why I ask, what's the difference between conceptual language and just language? Well, it's the concept, right? It's like, if we, keep, we just keep going round and round here. It's the concept. But, no, it's because I just described to... to you, obviously, a dog has to have a concept of a rabbit if it's to hunt it. No, 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 no. Because there's a difference between recognizing sense data that repeats and actually having the language to describe. Like, you would never get a dog to understand that a rabbit is a mammal. You would never get a dog to understand the concept of mammal, right? Not that I, well, I don't know any way to do so, certainly. Sure. Right. No, no. A dog has no capacity. How because, do you because, know a look, dog has look, no capacity? Then it's, it has it's no capacity to question. understand a concept called mammal. Warm-blooded, suckles its own young, bloody, bloody, blah, right? It would have no – and the reason we know that for sure is that language – in the brain, and the capacity to speak evolves simultaneously, right? There's no massive part of a dog's brain that it will grow, which will have all of this amazing language, but have no capacity to speak it or write it down. Because nature doesn't do that. Nature doesn't give you, like, so let's say that a dog developed a huge language center. It would then have to feed that. It would then have to keep it uh, watered, right? The brain uses a huge amount of water. It would have to carry it around, which is harder on the muscles and harder on the neck muscles, right? I mean, people like me with giant heads, we've got to do lots of neck exercises to make them topple over like a weeble. And so a dog, if it developed a language capacity for no benefit, in other words, it could not communicate concepts, it could not write them down, it could not store and accumulate knowledge across the generations, all the stuff that defines as human beings, that dog would die. That would be a, an evolutionary dead end because it would have a huge amount of overhead 
in the development of language centers in the brain, but it would gain no evolutionary advantage. In fact, it would be at an evolutionary disadvantage. It would need more food. It would run slower. It would need more water. And so, and it would, it would come with no concomitant advantage. Whereas human beings, human beings start to develop the capacity for language, like not barking or squealing like the, the whales or whatever, but capacity for language, well, okay. So you get a little bit of a bigger brain and you get a bit more of a facile tongue and lip and mouth and all that, so you can start to really communicate. Well, wow, that's amazing. There's an evolutionary advantage. So the brain gets a little bigger, and at the same time, the mouth gets a little bit more dexterous. And then the people who have the slightly bigger brain, the slightly more dexterous mouths, they survive better because they are able to better communicate. Uh, they're able to better store their knowledge, the, you know, whatever. They're better able to plan attacks. They're better able to plan how to surround uh, another village or, or a lion or whatever they're hunting, right? So they, they do better. And then they get a little bigger, a little they, – they, the mouth, the capacity to speak and the brain – Part, brain part, listen to me getting all technical, <laughs> the stuff in the head. <laughs> the, the, so the, the capacity for language and the brain part that controls language, they all develop simultaneously. There's no development of the brain part without, for language without the capacity to express language because without expressing language, you can't translate the brain part into an evolutionary advantage. And therefore, it becomes a liability and hampers your capacity to survive and reproduce. So there is no big, giant, latent capacity within a dog to process concepts because it would be an evolutionary liability to develop that much brain matter without being able to translate it into language that would aid in your survival and in the survival of your genes. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Okay. And to the second part of that question, um, okay, even within humans, when we apply, when you apply UPV, you, you do make distinctions between some people who have greater capacity and some who have lower capacity. But then my question is this. If there's no way to measure people's capacity, how do we then assign – or does it even matter whether we can measure capacity for choice? No, no. You can, mas- you can measure moral capacity. How do we measure it? Well, it's the insanity defense. This has been right, – there's no reason why you'd know this, right? But, I mean, it's been very well explicated throughout – thousands of years of common law and various legal traditions, right? So we recognize that if somebody has a brain tumor that destroys their neofrontal cortex and let's say another brain tumor that inflames their base of the brain impulses, that that person is physiologically barred because of a medical condition from intercepting their impulses. And so if they lash out and hit someone, then we would say, well, it's a brain tumor. We can't we can't blame this person morally because they're suffering from a deficiency, right? They have an inability to recognize that what they're doing is wrong because a brain tumor has eaten up their or displaced their moral reasoning center in the front of their head, right? So this would be one example uh, of um, the insanity defense. Um, if somebody had, uh, you know, just some other medical condition that there's a variety of them that would interfere with their capacity for uh, self-correction, uh, for intercepting impulses and so on, then that would be another. Now, on the other hand, if someone plans a murder ahead of time, creates a plausible alibi, uh, kills someone in some nefarious way that's very hard to trace, 
cunningly disposes of the body, then they have the capacity to plan. They're not acting in the impulse of the moment, and they know that what they're doing is wrong because they're hiding it, right? Yes. So this person, unlike the person who impulsively strikes someone and you find out they got a brain tumor, this person would be held morally responsible. And this is another reason why you know something like manslaughter, where you get really pissed off and somebody dies almost by accident, is different from first-degree murder, which is with malice of forethought and, and uh, you know, with, with a desire to escape. Right? So if some guy runs, runs into a bank and just starts screaming for money, that's – at a different level of moral responsibility than someone who, you know, drill, spends three months drilling up from the sewers into the bank vault. Well, in light of that, I guess a more appropriate question would be, is it an either-or or are there gradations of capacity for choice? Well, I think there's, gra- there's, there's gradations. I mean, I think there's either-or in, in some situations. But, I, you know, like the question is, you know, like a 15-year-old kills someone. I don't know. I mean, they're still 10 years away from brain maturity. How much of that do you pin on the parents or bad genetics, if that ever turns out to be the case? And how much do you pin on the kid? I mean, those are, those are difficult situations. So there's certainly are gradations. I don't think there's black and white issues with regards to moral responsibility. But the vast majority, I think, of those evaluations would be pretty clear cut. What about situations of addiction or compulsion, that kind of thing? Because you have um, people like child molesters who um, do seem to have compulsion for certain actions. Certainly, of course, yeah. they can. Maybe they can exercise. Some people have maybe greater strength of will to res- to restrain themselves, and maybe others don't. Like in the case of addiction, um, then how responsible are they if we can determine? Well, but addiction addiction doesn't just arise full-grown, right? I mean, it's not like, well, the first time someone has a cigarette, they are doomed to be a chain smoker for the next 50 years, right? Well, maybe not with uh, addictions, but you have stuff like no, heroin. Addi- where first well, but time, e- look, no, no, no. E- look, even, even like so the majority of heroin users during the Vietnam War, like who came back, 92% of them never touched heroin again. Right, so even habitual heroin users uh, did not end up uh, abusing heroin after that. I think 8% of them ended up going on to become heroin addicts. So even somebody who's a habitual user of the drug can choose to stop, obviously, when the circumstances are less. Now, to me, though, addiction uh, – it's a big, complex topic, so I'll just touch on it briefly. But I think that if people knew – much more clearly the relationship between child abuse and addiction, addictive tendencies, then I would hold addicts in like more responsible, right? So like Dr. Phil, uh, Phil McGraw, a TV guy in America, his father was an alcoholic, so he's never touched it. He's never touched alcohol, uh, according to his claim, no reason to disbelieve him. So he knows that he may have a genetic basis or certainly an experiential basis for weakness or susceptibility to alcoholism. So he doesn't touch it because he knows the relationship. Now, if people knew the relationship between child abuse and addiction, which is not perfect and not exact, but neither is smoking and lung cancer, but we still put terrifying pictures on <laughs> on cigarette packets, right? So I'd like to see you know, alcohol, drugs, cigarettes, and tits, all with a label that says, if you had a bad childhood you are much more likely to get addicted to these. 
casinos, uh, uh, thrill sports. You know, that, that you, these will replace the dopamine that your mom and dad never gave you. I, I'd like for people to know that, and which is why I do a lot of work trying to promote sort of the bomb in the brain, fdrurl.com slash BIB, going to give speeches to, to high school kids and all that on, on this stuff. Because we don't excuse someone who's a drunk driver because he's drunk, right? Sure. So he chose to get drunk. Now, we recognize that he has diminished capacity because he's drunk. Yeah. But he chose to have drinks and then chose to get into a car. So we know he has diminished capacity, but he's still responsible. If he's an alcoholic, he's still responsible, right? In fact, it's worse. If you, if you crash a car and you're drunk, it's worse than if you're sober, right? Sure. But so if he's an I alcoholic, that, I, I guess yeah. then his capacity to choose not to drink then it's not the same as that of a regular person. Yes, but why? Somebody doesn't just have somebody doesn't have one drink and become an alcoholic. So the thing is, of course, if you have like for instance, let me let me say give you an example from my personal life. Yeah. So when I was uh, younger, let's say young, uh, young, I'm forty eight. So when I was young, I was best man at one of my best friend's wedding. Yeah. And for his bachelor party, we went to can't uh, gamble. And oh, my brother, did the Steph bot like the gambling? Oh, yes, he did. Oh, did I love the gambling. And I mean, wow. I, and I saw this just big, big, giant, dark tunnel of Dostoevsky and hell opening up in front of me because I was like, oh, man, that is really good. That is really fun. I was so, I mean, distracted from myself and 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 it really just focused on a single thing and and it was exciting and i was you know thrilling and when i won i wanted more and when i lost i wanted more and i spent the night gambling and i was like well you know what i should never ever do again <laughs> i should really never ever gamble because <laughs> that is a very very bad idea cuz i loved it so much right so for people who they let's say they have a drink, right? And they say, "Wow, that's really nice," right? Then they have a fork in the road, right? I mean, I, I can drink or not drink, right? I mean, I I, I had a beer tonight at dinner, a light beer, <laughs> and you know, then I'll ha- in a week I might have another light beer. I can drink or not drink. Uh, to me, the only place a beer is fantastic is if you've been doing yard work and it's a hot day. Then, dear God, a beer is like a beautiful thing. Other than that. I don't like wine. Hard liquor is like I pay to not have it, basically. And so I don't have any issues with with drinking. But gambling, that could have been my my nemesis. That could have taken my life in a whole different direction. So people don't just – I had a drink. I'm now an addict. There is a series of steps that people take in order to develop a physical addiction. Now – we don't all start off equal, right? There are people who have these, you know, missing dopamine receptors or dopamine juice and they, they get it from cocaine or nicotine or whatever. Yeah. So we're not all equal. So if people had more knowledge about the relationship between childhood trauma and addiction, then I think they'd be more responsible. But people generally hide this because uh, it's negative to women in general. So it can't be spoken of, right? Yeah. So, uh, but but addicts don't just suddenly pop out full full blown addicts, right? They they have something and they take. I'm, I mean, I hate to put it this way, but I think it's true. They take the easy route, right? So when an addict has something like cocaine or heroin and it feels fantastic and it feels wonderful, 
then that's a sign to them that they're missing something, that they need something. And rather than go in pursuit of that and, and develop self-knowledge, figure out their trauma and so on, they just take the easy route or the lazy route in some ways of saying, well, look, I'll just, I'll just have this again, right? Like somebody with social anxiety might self-medicate through alcohol rather than deal with the social anxiety. But that's a choice. It's a lazy choice. Stop drinking and deal with your shit. But that presumes they understand they have a problem. Like in your case, when you went and gambled, you could have just said, well, it's a great time. I should do it again. Or you, some people don't recognize immediately that this might turn no, but, into a problem for me. But I can do math, right? <laughs> and there's no possible – like, you know what I noticed? I noticed that the people in the gambling casino – or it wasn't a gambling casino. I can't remember where we were. But I noticed that the people had clothes on. And what that meant was they had bought their clothes with something. And they sure as hell weren't buying their clothes from their losses, right? You, people go into the casino and they say, wow, look at all the lights. It's so pretty. Wow, look, I get free drink. It's like, that's because you're going to lose. They pay for that because you're going to lose. The more lights, the more you lose. The prettier the girls, the more drinks, the more you lose. The nicer the outfits, the more starched the collars, the more you're going to lose. The prettier it is, the worse it is for you. So it's just basic math. Casinos exist because they're profitable, and they're profitable because more people lose than win. Right? And so that's not brain surgery. I mean, the fact that casinos are profitable is not confusing to people. And the fact that the profits must come from the losses of the people gambling there is also not brain surgery, right? I mean, sure. if you can figure out your bus fare, you can figure that one out, right? Sure. So that, I, I, I don't, you know, I may make some claims to intellectual greatness over the years. That won't be one of them. Yeah, I understand that. But the question is not whether or not they can figure it out. It's whether or not they can figure out they have an, a problem of addiction from just one, I don't know, enjoyable experience. Sure. And, and again, nobody becomes an addict because of one drink. So, but at some point, before there's a giant problem, there's a smaller problem, right? Like nobody wakes up 100 pounds overweight, right? Sure. Right? I mean, people who are overweight go through a process of getting overweight. I mean, I'm not talking about like the poor kids whose parents screw them up by feeding them too much crap and, and you know, the kids. But as an adult, I've known people who've gone from like a buck fifty to 250. And. You know, every now and then, you, you know, you, you know someone who's like not thin, and then you see their wedding pictures, and like, holy crap, you ate that whole person, <laughs> right? Wasn't there some cake or something? Like, did you have to just go and eat that poor person? Are you okay in there? Can we lower you down some rice crackers? Yeah. And and they, but they don't just boom. Well, next thing you know. <laughs> I'm big boned. It's like, no, Brontosaurus is a big boned. You're fat. And so they, they gain weight. And they know that they're gaining weight because they have to keep buying new clothes. And they can't see their junk anymore, right? Where are my toes? Dunno, hope they're okay. Wiggle, babies. See if I can still feel you. Right? So they don't just like it's a process of continual non self monitoring. I've never frankly understood how people can gain that much weight. I mean, at some point, doesn't it kick in that this is pretty horrifying? I, again, I just, something I don't, I don't understand. And look, I've gained a little and dropped a little over the years. So I think I'm 25 pounds down from like five or six years ago. And I've, I've kept it off, which just puts me in the 3% category. But, 
But the reality is that – and everybody knows that you know you are likely to gain about a pound a year as you get older uh, or two pounds a year as you get – metabolism slows and your life gets busy, less time to exercise and all that. So, I mean, people don't just wake up fat and people don't just wake up addicted, right? There is a process that occurs and it's not the first bite of cheesecake that makes you put on 100 pounds, but at some point, you're eating too much and you're exercising too little, right? It's just calories in, calories out. And you know that you have a problem long before it becomes health-threatening, right? Sure. Again, assuming you have – you self-monitor. Assuming you have what? You self-monitor. You monitor yourself for – No, your pants will do that for you. Yeah, but yeah, in case of, I guess – you could just see it as, I don't know, it's a minor inconvenience for the moment and it'll go away. Some people sort of do that sort of self-deception where it's like, oh, it's just no, a temporary. No, no, no. Your pants, pants don't lie, baby. That's what I learned from Shakira. Hips and pants don't lie. You know, if you can't fasten those bad boys together under your little tsunami of beer gut, yes, pants don't lie. If you're putting your legs in your pants and you look like a Zeppelin in a condom, then yeah, you got a problem. So it's not, to me, that hard to figure out uh, what's going on, you know. <laughs> Can I fit through the doorway? No. I might have put on some weight, <laughs> you know. Is my car driving at 30 degrees? Well, I might have put on some weight, right? When I step on the bus, does it half fall over? I might have put on – you can go on and on, right? When your mama sits around the house, she really sits around, the house, right? So, uh, y- you know, these things are not – you know, people who've got you know genuine medical issues and – I had a friend who, who said, I'm taking medication that is making me gain weight. And it's like, really? So the fact that you have nine pounds of pasta every dinner plus this weird combination of nine pounds of pa- veal parmigiana pasta plus this medication is making you gain weight. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I don't you have people like medicine. this who do engage in self-deception. Right. Yeah. But he knew he was gaining weight and he lied to himself about it. Okay, that's fine. Then you can lie to yourself about it. But – He's responsible for that, right? I can lie to myself and say I'm fine to drink if I've had five. I'm fine to drive if I have five drinks, and I'm responsible for that. Yeah, but but my question isn't so much whether you're responsible. It's if you have less capacity to control yourself as a regular – like, again, a regular person could eat and they'll be fine and they'll move on. To what degree are you responsible as if a normal person were to engage in such a thing? Because obviously you have a diminished capacity for control. Why, why obviously? Because do you have a problem? A, I guess a psych- psychiatrically diagnosable problem? Oh, don't, don't stop me on the psychiatrically <laughs> diagnosed mythological illnesses. You've got unicorns. Here's some drugs to stuff up your ass that would take down a horse. Um, so, but, but this to me is this tautology because you're sort of saying, well, what about people who have diminished capacity? Well, how do we know they have diminished capacity? Because they act like they have diminished capacity. It's like, well, I don't think that's really added much to the discussion. And this goes down into the mystery, which we don't know from the outside, which is people say, well, I just couldn't stop myself, right? But to me, and I made this podcast years ago. We should probably move on to the next one after this. But it's the, it's the billion-dollar question. It used to be the million-dollar question, but then there was quantitative easing. And the billion-dollar question is, you know, if, if you've got cancer, people can give you a billion dollars. Do you still have cancer? Yeah. Sure do. Now, if you're about to take a drink and somebody says, here's a billion dollars to not take a drink for the next five minutes, what do you do? 
Obviously, I don't have a problem with drinking, so I'll take it. No, <laughs> look, there's no addict in the world that couldn't defer that drink for five minutes for a billion dollars. I agree with you, but I've seen some people that are like heroin addicts or meth addicts that I'm not no, too no, sure. I get it. I get it. I understand. I understand. But they cannot act on their addiction for five minutes if there's sufficient incentive. There's no incentive in the world that can make someone not be a cancer patient for five minutes. There's a difference, right? If, if my arm gets bitten off by a bull shark, there's no amount of money in the world that gets me to regrow my arm. But addiction is to some degree a matter of concentrating on incentives. That's all it is. Addiction fundamentally is saying the next five minutes are more important than the next five years. And that's why the billion dollar quest, the question is important because you shift the incentives. Now, if the quote, disease can be cured by the shifting of incentives, it's not a disease because that doesn't happen with multiple sclerosis. It doesn't happen with diphtheria. There's no amount of money you could shovel at Thomas Duncan to make him not die of Ebola five minutes before he was going to die of Ebola. So there is, in addiction, a shifting of incentives to the very short-term incentive, right? Every smoker lights up a smoke and says, well, this, you know, basically says later, well, I shouldn't smoke, right? Because it's bad for me, right? Yeah. But but it's uncomfortable to not smoke, so you light up another cigarette, and then you light up, you keep lighting up cigarettes, and you have this debate with yourself all the time: Is it time for another cigarette? Is it dangerous? Should I do this or that? But basically, you know, then when the smoker gets sick, if the smoker gets sick, the smoker says, "Well, that was stupid. Now I'm sick, right?" Yeah. And so they're focusing on the short term, and look, we all do this. I mean, there's nothing, you know, short term, long term. There's no big moral thing to go for only long term, right? I mean, you could starve yourself your whole life, saving for your retirement, get hit by a bus, and be revealed as an idiot, right? So, um, it, it, but but with um, with addicts, the mystery of why some get better and why some don't to me, it's simply just a matter of focus and concentration and getting appropriate help, right? I think therapy is fantastic for addiction. And why do some people do that? Well, because they choose to shift their cost-benefit analysis, right? Anyway, so I, I don't have big answers. So this is just sort of my theories, but I think that um, there is choice. And I think the problem with, with saying to addicts, you have an incapacity, you have no choice, it's a disease and so on, is it robs them of the very muscle they need the most, which is the billion dollar uh, – the, the billion dollar question is really important because if you are an addict and you pursue a dangerous addiction for too long, then you will die, right? I mean heroin addicts overdose and smokers get lung cancer and drinkers get cirrhosis of the liver and fat people get diabetes and heart attacks and strokes. and Like at some point you'll be dead or you'll die from your addiction. And then if you had a billion dollars, you would give that billion dollars to live longer. So the idea of the billion dollars for five minutes, you know, you'll need that billion dollars when you're dying because if you could buy your way free, you would. And if you keep going with those five minutes, you end up not being addicted, right? All addictions are just five minutes, five minutes, five minutes that go on forever where you don't do your addiction, right? Yeah, but you still have the the science behind some addiction, again, like the dopamine levels – and that kind of thing, which suggests, sure, it's partly that they can't, I guess, the, the, the incentives, and then partly also brain chemistry. Absolutely, absolutely. But this is why we want to tell people about the childhood relationship, and we also want to remind people, if you find something takes away your pain, you're better off embracing the pain, 
right? I'm not talking like a headache or something, right? But I mean, emotional pain, right? Then you're better off walking into the fire than running from it because then you'll just burn up in the distance. So, um, and, and I am, I'm always concerned about, you know, well, it's brain chemistry, so, you know, you don't have a choice. That's like saying to every fat person, well, it's a thyroid condition, you can't lose weight. It's like, well, what if they can't, right? <laughs> Shouldn't we reinforce that muscle? And I, I don't have the answer, right? And, and I don't think anyone does, but I sort of err on the side of, of providing people as much empowerment as possible um, and <laughs> seeing what happens. So I, um, I'm guessing that's also sort of the same answer for compulsion? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think we want to do as much as we can to promote free choice and free will, while at the same time giving sympathy for where people, you know, not everyone starts off equal when it comes to addiction uh, and uh, our susceptibility to addic- addiction. But, uh, but, th- but that very fact is important, right? I mean, not everyone's going to die of lung cancer who's a smoker, but you don't know ahead of time how susceptible you are to lung cancer, right? And because of that, you, you shouldn't smoke. And so, yeah, we, we don't know how susceptible we are to various addictions. And so don't, you know, don't do the kind of stuff that's going to end up with you being addicted. Right? I don't think anyone could be called an addict who has a beer a week. Just don't do more, right? Because it's going to go down that path. And I think just reinforcing that for people is important. It's not going to solve everything, but uh, I think it will help. Anyway, we can do one more call. I really appreciate you. great questions, great comments, and a very enjoyable uh, and I'm certainly looking forward to all of the massive piles of hatred that will pour our way whenever the topic of a- animal ethics uh, comes up. But, uh, you know, I'm sure that people will figure out that the animals are their own childhoods and solve it in the long run that way. But uh, appreciate the call. Welcome back anytime. Really enjoyable. Okay. Thanks for having me. Thanks, man. All right. Well, up next is Matt. Matt wrote in and said, what is the role of the anarchist in getting attorneys to understand the role that they play? Should anarchists view attorneys through the same lens as they do the police? It just seems like after parents stop abusing their kids and morality or UPB is taught, aren't lawyers the next biggest thing standing in the way of creating a peaceful, stateless society? This is if there ever was going to be one here in America. Hi, Steph. Do you know uh, an attorney? Are we talking about something in your life, or is this more abstract? Uh, a, a little bit. A little bit of both. Um, there are a couple attorneys I'm, I'm related to, and um, it just seems like, you know, kind of like I stated, after, let's just assume everybody under, understands UPB and understands, you know, and grows up without being spanked, it's kind of like... If I could make a metaphor, it's like if the state is a giant no, no metaphors in this okay. show. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> if if the state is like a giant crazed octopus and the cops are the suction cups on the tentacles, then it seems like the lawyers are kind of like the the tentacle itself. So it's like once we, it's like once the, you know we can establish cops not you know committing heinous you know actions against people against their will. It's like we still have to deal with oh the lawyers, the part of the system. You, you may be begging the question a little bit here, brother. <laughs> I just once I just, we solve the cop problem, let's move on. Should we then move on to the lawyer problem? Well, it's I think just, that first step kind of might all, be a bit of a doozy, right? I know. It's just once kind we of, figure out time travel, should we go watch the fifty-seven Brooklyn game? It's like I think that first step might be a little bit more important than the second I, one. Right? I hear you. I hear you. It just seems like they're all part of the same. It's all part of the same monster. And how do we deal with? lawyers as do we do, do we educate them do we say hey you okay. know it's, sorry you got to tell me the personal side of this 
I just, I, it just, they're part of the system. Who do and you know? they, in it, they inadvertently. Have, hang on. Who do you know who's a lawyer? Well, I have two uncles that are lawyers. Okay. Okay. So, so this is your game plan, right? Like if you can convince your two uncles that they're enmeshed in a corrupt system. Oh, I mean, you- that's, that's a problem is I don't even think I'd be able to because they just, because of their, because of what they do, I think as a profession, and they're going through law school and they're being so um, much invested in what they do. It's kind of like when you talk to them about anarchy and about all these all these ideas and and these philosophy or, you know, this philosophy, it's just like it's like they always find a reason to 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 shoot it down and say, oh, well, it'll never work that way um, because and I can see where they're coming from because they're part of the system that we're saying that needs needs to go away. Yeah, I mean, this then they're going to be well paid. So for that, right? It's just like, you know, you would, you would think dense, uh, defense attorneys would be the most like anarchic people out there because they're always trying to defend, you know, criminals against the punishment of the state. And it's like, but they're not. They're still part of the same beast. And how do we like how do we deal with that? Wait, so are you saying that you want people to give up their professions, their training, their education, their income and their seniority? Because the system is corrupt. I guess uh, you do. I mean, look. Be honest. That's this. What, I mean, that's what you want, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. And, I'm not being critical. I'm not. I'm not trying to make it sound dumb or anything. Like I'm, right, I just no, want no, to be no, really clear on what you're looking for, right? I just feel I'm not trying to make fun. I'm mock. I'm, I'm serious. Like that. That's what you want. Yeah. Again, if if there's ever to be a free society, how do we? peel that apart how do we get them well, it, like, it ain't gonna be your uncles i'll tell you that <laughs> it's like it's they're they're just, are they just like future dro agents or it's like how do like what what is their role like i mean i understand that there's going to have to be people around to understand okay future gros okay do you think you can convince them to not hit their children uh, I probably could make some good arguments to them about that. Okay, not, and I don't think they do. The ones I know, at least. So. Okay, good, good. Could could you convince them to not yell at their children? Mm, yeah, yeah. That would be okay. A little harder, but yeah, sure. Yeah, okay. Do you think you might be able to convince them to not punish their children? Um, no, no. They're going to want to punish their children as they see fit. Why do you think that last one? was so certain you're like yeah no hitting no yelling oh punishment no can't do that well i mean the arguments are strong right their right? arguments the, the empirical the moral argument is pretty clear which is that uh, you punish because you're bigger because you have the capacity to and it's a failure of reason right like they wouldn't say listen judge you wouldn't say, listen, judge, you don't accept my argument. I'm punching you. You overruled my objection. I'm roundhousing you to the head, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So if they lost a debate or didn't get their way with a judge, they would not resort to force, right? Correct. And if they lost a debate or didn't get their way with their children, resorting to size and strength and power is equally illegitimate, right? Correct. So and and the empirical evidence is exceedingly strong for this approach, right? That, that punishment doesn't work. 
what, what kind what kind of punishment doesn't like like you know like physical punishment is that that's what you're talking about? No, any well because what what punishment isn't physical punishment to some degree, right? I mean, because if you are attempting to train a child like a dog, you're not respecting that child as a human being, right? So we give dogs treats and withholds whatever and say mean things to them or no bad doggy or whatever, right? To train a dog and what is used to train a dog is really not befitting a human being, right? Right. And there is a huge amount of evidence uh, that, uh, for instance, grades tend to – grades are rewards, right? And failing, failing grades are punishments. And grades tend to diminish curiosity and capacity for learning, which is why children become less intelligent, less curious, less able to think the longer they're exposed to government systems, which are all heavily reliant on grades and so on, right? Right. The punishments and reward system uh, tends to promote compliance with the punishment and rewards. It does not tend to promote any kind of independent thinking, curiosity, self-growth, commitment to higher learning, commitment to empathy, and it certainly doesn't teach empathy. Right, right, right. Because you're you're using like so. Let's say you take something away that a child has, and, and a child wants. The child's the child's favorite thing is is his iPad, right? And you say you did something wrong. I'm taking away your iPad. What you're saying then to the child is that empathy is used for cruelty, because you're saying, well, I know what you like the most, and that's what I'm going to take away. In other words, my knowledge of your preferences is used to harm you, not to benefit you. Hmm. And so when you take away something that the child wants, like if you, if you, you know, some child has a, a, a bag of garbage that they want to throw out and it's smelling up the room and you come in and you say, bad child, I'm taking away your garbage and throwing it out for you. What's the child going to say? Uh, sure. <laughs> Go ahead. Thanks. Can I do anything else wrong? Because, you know, yeah, I, yeah. I got some toe jam that needs scraping out too, right? Yeah. There's cat litter in the, uh, in the closet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, bad child, I'm cleaning your bathroom, right? I mean, this, right? So so when you say bad child and you punish the child, even if it's just like taking away something or you can't go to the party on Friday night, right? Well, you would only do that because you know the child really wants to go to the party on Friday night, right? So you're using your knowledge of the child's preferences. You're using your empathy with the child or of the child's preferences, to harm the child. In other words, the child now knows that revealing preferences makes him a target mm. for harm. And then what's the, is the child going to want to share what he or she likes with you? Of course not. No. Right? If, if the child – let's say you got a teenager who really wants to go to a party and also wants to break curfew, mm-hmm. right? They're going to say – they're not going to say, I really want to go to that party. They're not going to say, I really want to – because they know then that's what's going to be taken away. So you've created a, a hider and an evader and an obscurer. And then kids say – the parents say, I don't know. He doesn't confide in me. It's like, well, duh. <laughs> of yes. course he doesn't. Yeah. Because you use the knowledge against him. Of course he's not going to confide in you. Yeah. Shock So, there. I mean, yeah. I mean, of course it doesn't, doesn't work, right? Right. And so, so how does that tie in with, with, with lawyers kind of being – uh, an obstacle, I guess. I'm, I'm just still trying to. It's, it's just like if we're trying. Okay, to no, have, no, no. You, you know, the journey of a thousand miles begins right a single step, right? So, if you can get them to stop hitting, if you can get them to stop yelling, and if you can get them to stop punishing, mm-hmm. you have done the greatest and most necessary step to making a free society. 
So teach reason. Don't just kind of allow punishment to happen as it happens. We, yeah, people grow up and they say, without authority that can punish and reward us, it would be anarchy. Yes, it would. <laughs> right? Yes, it would. Yes, it would. But not right. Yeah. Wouldn't that be great, right? Yeah. Without just... rape. Without rape, there would just be sex. It's like, yes. <laughs> and it's, it's, that's a good thing. Right, right. Right. It's just you've been there's been a lot of talk, um, even in the, with the previous calls and your last few shows, um, just about how lawyers are just these monsters, it seems like, that just don't do anything really to benefit real justice from being understood and from working towards the the this whole checks and balances thing it's like it's just like they inadvertently bolster like i said in sort of my question is like they inadvertently bolster the system and oh yeah i mean they are the system in many ways right i mean you, you know this probably better than anyone including me but because you've got right relatives who are lawyers but basically what what is the purpose of law uh, lawyers and in a state of society. The purpose of lawyers in a state of society is twofold. Number one is to restrict other people from becoming lawyers, which is why they put heavy quotas on who can get into law school and how many law schools there are. So restrict entry into the profession. And number two is to make the law so fucking complicated that you have no choice but to hire a lawyer. That's the sole purpose of uh, two, like keep people from coming into the field and make our Use the power of the state to make our services so incredibly necessary that nobody can survive without us. Lawyers should not be necessary. Do you need a lawyer to sign a contract to lease a car? No, you don't because that's a market situation. Do you need a lawyer to even buy a car? No, you don't because that's a free market situation. Do you need a lawyer to get a cell phone contract going? No, free market situation. You get arrested by the cops for some goddamn thing. Do you need a lawyer? Fuck you do. Of course you do, because you've got 9,000 law books raining down upon you that can put you in a very dark place with some very anally interested people for an extraordinary number of years, right? Yeah, and it's interesting how the really any school system is supposedly preparing us for life, or so they say, and then it's like we, we become 18, we, we get a little independence, and we, <laughs> we we're thrown out into, into life. And they teach us nothing about how to deal with law. And with oh God, no! They can't teach law. you anything about law. Are you kidding me? If they if they taught you if they taught kids anything about law, there'd be a fucking revolution. Yeah, yeah. They'd it's, say, "Are you kidding me?" They'd say, "They say, you know what I'd say as a kid? If they started to teach me anything about law, right? I'd say, okay, uh, can you bring the law books in here? Right, bring them in." I want to see these things, right? On, on, on one of those carts from uh, from Home Depot. No. How many books of law affect the average citizen? Hundreds and hundreds of densely printed, tiny yeah. text. Yeah. Thin tissue paper laws that change every year. There are hundreds of thousands of new regulations and laws just in America come in through the Federal Register and other places, right? It is impossible to comply with the law. But that's what rulers want. Right. They don't law is an excuse for shakedowns from the legal profession and it's used to terrify the population with an incomprehensibly dangerous beast of legal bullshit. Right? The law has nothing to do with controlling crime. It has nothing to do with 
keeping the people safe. It is a blunt instrument used to cudgel the people into desperately dangerous submission. And it is kept by an occult priest of assholes who restrict entry and make themselves necessary because they pretend that they are the shield between you and the state. Very but good. Most Very lawyers, good. But l- most lawyers have absolutely nothing to do with defending their clients. Most lawyers are about feeding their clients into a system which demands that the clients plead guilty. Otherwise, they would go away for a pretty unspecified amount of time, right? Which is why like 95, 96, 97% – of court cases never go to trial mm-hmm. because the government <laughs> simply says, well, you know what? We have so many laws, we can just pick and choose shit that might stick. Right. And nobody knows whether it's going to work or not. Nobody – the judges don't know. Nobody knows. Yeah. Nobody knows whatsoever. It's like saying that uh, a fireman is in charge of a forest fire. They don't have a fucking clue <laughs> what's going on and they certainly can't control it, one fireman. Mm-hmm. And so they throw all this shit at you because there's so many laws. They can find some goddamn thing, right? Right. And then they say, well, you know, we add all this stuff up and you're looking at 10 years. Mm-hmm. But if you plea down, you know, you get six months. But it wasn't me. It was the one-armed man. Yeah. I, uh... so, 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 I mean, so lawyers, um, they are um, human traffickers. They are uh, pretty much slave owners in my humble opinion. Not every single lawyer and so on, but in general as a profession, they are in the service of feeding people into the state apparatus for money. Right. Which, which, and that's why they say, just, just plea out. Right. Are you crazy? If you go to trial, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take you years. And the, the system is so terrible. I'm talking particularly about the US. I don't know much about Canada or history. Or biology. Anyway, but um, the system in the U.S. is so horrendous. It's so god-awful. So unbelievably destructive that the best you can hope for from the lawyer is a flesh wound rather than decapitation. That, that's the best you can hope for. Yeah. You know, well, they're going to shoot you somewhere. I'll hold down your hand. That way you don't get shot in the leg. That's that's the best you can hope for. It's it's a staggeringly terrible system. In in divorce court, uh, it's a very important and instructive movie to to watch. We had the film America on the show a couple of months ago. Right. There's a lawyer who's thumbing through divorce court C O R P. There's a lawyer who's thumbing through the um, family court, family law, and he said he's a lawyer, approximately I don't know, thirty two hundred years old. And he says, you know, well, this, is, this, is, this was the family law when I first started. And it's this tiny little book, big print, you know, like C. Jane Sue, C. <laughs> right? C. Dick Run. And it was pretty, you know, I don't know how long. It was pretty short, right? Pretty clear, right? Right. And, and now he says, and now this is just the law in California. And it's like, yeah. it's this giant tome basically almost flips him right over. And he's, thinning, he's thumbing through these tissue papers. And he said, and yeah, and here's the addendums for this year and shit like that. And it's like. Oh, man. I mean, Dickens got a great uh, um, explanation of of the law. And, and, and the system is so horrible that the process is the punishment. In other words, if, if let's say you, you get charged with something false and whatever, right? And you go through years 
try, uh, fighting to clear your name, uh, ever-present threat of arrest. Your whole li- life is on hold. You, you, you can't sleep. You, right? the, the process is the punishment. That is exactly what happened to me. I just got done dealing with two years of just exactly that. Yep. Right. Your whole life's on hold, right? Yeah. I, hey, feel like dating? No, oh, I'm getting fucked anyway. And the amount of stress. I mean, I mean, I'm I'm applying to graduate schools, and I'm thinking, is this all even worth it? Like, I'm just waiting around to hear some verdict for something I know uh, is unjust. I know that I wasn't guilty of doing, and it's like, what is you know, is this all worth it? Like, like the graduate schools are going to look at this, and is all of the four years I went through college and all this work that I had to do to fill out these applications and the hundreds of hundreds of dollars I had to pay to, you know, submit these applications. Like, is it all just going to be for nothing? And the amount of stress that that brings on is just, I mean, it almost drove me crazy. It almost drove me nuts. And the only person I could go to for any solace was actually my uncle who um, was the guy who helped me out. Well, and so you were lucky enough to have a lawyer in the family, right? So you weren't paying 500, 600, 700, 800, 900 dollars an hour. Right. So right, takes, and and the, the, and and so even if you're completely exonerated, you're fucking scarred, right? Right, right. Take away the cash, and and it's still just the the amount of stress. I mean, the amount of cortisol that's like pumping that was pumping through my veins. Like after I knew that, oh hey, this changed, and uh, they just you know this new thing came out, and this might change our case. I mean, it's just like, oh my god, it was just so it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth that amount of stress at all, and I had to endure it, you know, regardless. Yeah, because, of course, your body reacts to it like there's a lion in the room. So your body reacts with this cortisol like, okay, so in approximately four and a half minutes, either the lion or me is walking out of the room. But so four and a half minutes, right? Mm -hmm. And you stretch that shit out for years. I mean, it's wearing on the system, right? It wore on me. Yeah. Yeah, you lose weight. You can't sleep. You you can't enjoy everything. And it's like a dimmer switch. Like you can turn it down, but you can't turn it off, right? Right. Mm Mm-hmm. And that is, um, yeah, for people who've not been through this kind of stuff, uh, you, you know, God, God help you if you do, right? Because, because the punishment is the process and the process is the punishment. And in the end, of course, it matters, you know, I mean, to, to the outsider, it matters whether you're innocent or guilty or found that way. But, you know, when I hear people, oh, found guilty of something, it's like, nope, <laughs> I don't believe it. I, I don't. I simply don't believe it because I do. I'm no expert, but I know enough about how the system works, particularly in the states. You you get caught in that machinery, Ugh. and you know, like Aaron Swartz, you know, he was going to be found. The guy was facing fucking 35 years in jail. Yeah. For stealing, quote, stealing some stuff from JSTOR. JSTOR didn't even want to press charge. They withdrew everything. And they said, fine, just take it, put it on the internet. Who gives a shit, right? No, they have to make an example. Uh, make an example, uh, teach a lesson, and it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you bunch of just a bunch of sadists. And nobody can work in that system, I think. Now, again, there are you know decent, nice lawyers, I'm sure, and all that, but uh, the system is so – I mean, I've, I've, I've never – you know, I've, I've brushed up against the legal system. I've never had any <clears throat> charges, never any criminal blah, 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 right? But, oh, man, I mean, from what I've seen and, and the stories that I've heard, I am so sorry for what you went through, man. I am so – incredibly sorry for what you went through because it is a brutal, brutal experience to be in that kind of searchlight, to be in that kind of targeted environment. And you're so helpless. And all you can do is just wait for the next blow that's going to come out of you don't know where, right? 
And, and you know what the worst part was is that my pending court case, which was first dismissed, it was first dismissed because oh, we got uh, it, it was for a DUI. You know, I hated many whatever DUI, um, and it was like oh well, you know, after year one passed and I hadn't even had a conversation whatsoever with any lawyer or a judge. I just kept, you know, showing up to these court cases and it continuance after continuance, a year passes by my, my case gets dismissed and then it gets reopened the next year. And it's like, Oh, sorry, we have so many uh, DUI convictions ahead of you. We have to take a whole year to, you know, to process yours. And it's just like throughout that year, like this dismissed court case was still on my public record. So this dismissed court case kept me, from succeeding in the private market. I just, I had to contact, I mean, I finally had to get the job that I have now. I finally had to earn because I had to go in and talk to the CEO of the HR company and explain to him that this was dismissed and this is still being decided. And I'm, you know, these are all the convictions, but this is, this is what happened. And it was embarrassing. And, and, I, I had to like I had to put you know two and four and five together and, and call my uncle a million times to figure out what was going on why I was getting uh, you know basically denied from all of these jobs that I was applying to and it was because a dismissed court case was on my public record and right. it it cut me deep in in the in the you know in the financial uh, in in a financial aspect and in, in the private market like what kind of crap is that. Right. Well, it, it's it's the kind of crap that you know. I mean, I assume the, if it was dismissed, they they didn't have anything particular to go on, and you know, I'm again, I don't want I don't want to ask you what happened. Right. We don't have to go into it. Not, yeah, like, no, I mean, I'm I'm obviously interested, but I just right. don't want to ask you. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, it is uh, it, it is a it is a brutal system, and the uh, the idea, of course, was that you had a right to a speedy trial. Right. <laughs> well. And yeah. you you know you had and and also to me like where's 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 the jeopardy for the for the prosecutors? Right. Right. So so if you fail to prove your innocence, you know, to the satisfaction of whoever, whoever uh, you go to jail, you get massive fines, you have a record. Right. There's huge negative consequences if they're right, so to speak. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. But what if they're wrong? Yeah. Then I, I still what do they suffer? Yeah. What, they, what do they care? And I still lose all that time. Yeah. Well, and time, and stress, and money, right? And you now have a permanently different relationship to your society, right? Yeah. Right. I mean, you see a cop now. How long is it going to take for your heart to stop pounding? Right. <laughs> uh, it's not even fair. It's just, it's horrible. I think your dog is trying to argue um, some <laughs> abstract court case uh, she, she to agrees. the satisfaction of the listeners, right? She agrees. Um, yeah. So. Uh, so I'm look. I, I don't know what happened, and I'm obviously no fan of drunk driving because I've talked about it in the show before. So I don't want to get into any of that. But I just, you know, want people to understand that even if you did something wrong, the process is brutal, right? And and you should either, you know. But of course, the whole system is clogged up with all these non crimes, right? You know, all this this drug stuff and prostitution stuff, and you name it. You know, it's like, oh God. I mean, of course they can't get to anything real and important right. because the the cops are just busy getting numbers up yeah. by arresting pot smokers because pot smokers are a hell of a lot less dangerous to deal with than murderers and thieves. And and it was, uh, reluctantly, it was a marijuana DUI, which I didn't even know could could be a thing. I was, you know, 21 at the time. So, right. 
It's just don't smoke and drive. Yeah. <laughs> I know there's mixed studies about it and all that, but don't smoke and drive. Right. Yeah, and I would like and to see I would like to see more come out on that because a lot of people debated and it's, you know, a back and forth thing. It was a it was a stupid decision. I I don't uh you know, that's not what what's the issue, obviously. It was, it was stupid. It was stupid to smoke and drive, but at least I wasn't belligerently drunk and it was on uh New Year's Eve when they have about well, they have huge task force and, you know, big vans and, and you know, practically like semis, you know, the like semi trailers full of of you know the machines and and, and uh, like uh, uh, what's it, centrifuges to like process people's blood samples and it's just it's ridiculous it's all this money that goes into don't don't drive New Year's Eve I mean don't don't I mean go out for sure I mean it's it's a fun party night but uh, you know boy you you never had a more expensive saving of your cab fare in your life right yeah yeah. So, um, so just, just kind of going back to the lawyer thing. So when we were talking about that, it's it just sort of sounds like lawyers are kind of just like this ploy, like they're kind of pretending, like you said, and that goes along with one of my questions. One of my other questions was, um, what is your opinion or, or what do you think about the link between, um, lawyers, sociopathy and Hollywood in, in other words, actors, because I, time and time again, I keep seeing. Okay, I know, I know, yeah. that's crazy. But here, it's a word association football. Okay, I know. I, I think I vaguely remember reading something about this. I, I think that actors are narcissists, and lawyers t- tend to test high for sociopathy. And yeah, I, I just time and time again, I keep hearing on TV that uh, you know, I'll watch the Today Show, and there'll be some new actor coming on talking to you know Kelly and Michael, and. Uh, it's like every single one of them is like, oh, well, you know, I was in law school and I didn't know what I wanted to do at the time. And so I talked to my – I think um, Gerard Butler, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow maybe. I'm not – maybe I'm thinking of some other. Oh, Gwyneth Paltrow. That's a pretty easygoing law school, but I <laughs> could be wrong. I'm not sure, but uh, some – some, some, uh, quite a few of these really, really, you know, A-list actors were once in law school or, or mm. thinking about law school. And I'm just like – trying to understand what the if there's a a link that we haven't sort of looked at or analyzed yet if there's a link between wanting to be an actor or you know just pretending this idea that you can pretend sociopathy and 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 law or you know lawyers it's just uh, it seems like there's something going on there so what do you what do you think about that well the um the the actor thing is interesting right because i have some Experience. I went to two years of theater school, National Theater School, in Canada, and you know did some did some acting, I guess you could say, and uh, wrote some plays and all that. Nice. There is a, an interesting aspect to acting, which which is is kind of tough to explain. But most people, if they're being watched, like if if a, a thousand people are watching you, is it easy for you to act naturally? Uh, no. <laughs> no. It would probably make you pretty nervous, yeah. It would make you pretty nervous, right? I mean, thousand people. I mean, you know, let's just say you you, you know, you come down in the morning in your bathrobe and, you know, you're going to have a coffee and some toast and something like that. And there are like a hundred people, you know, staring through your windows, watching everything that you do. Well, you're going to be kind of... Let's just say self-conscious about that, right? (laughs) Right. Now, actors, though, have the capacity to function as if nobody's watching. Mm -hmm. 
right? That's a very interesting mindset. So they have the ability to sort of distance themselves. Yeah. To block out to block out the presence of other human beings is essential for an actor. Sounds a lot like sociopathy. No, I think no, I think it's more narcissistic. Again, I, I don't know the technical definitions, just use these as an amateur, but I think it's more self absorbed. Like other people don't like a sociopath generally will want to use other people and right and right. maybe there's and, some aspect to it, but and, but, but as a sociopath, you're you're I mean, and in some level, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, or, or just again, just comment if you will. But you're sort of as a sociopath, you're sort of at least on some level conceptually distancing or blocking out truth. So yeah. it's kind of like I have this I have this ability to sort of distance myself from reality, from what's really going on in the present moment, and not being able to. Um, <clears throat> be obligated to um, understand or recognize what's happening in the present moment or what's true. Yeah, I, I think I think the blocking of other people's emotional reality is essential for an actor because you have to you have to act like nobody's there, mm-hmm. particularly in movies, which is an even more artificial environment right. in some ways because you've got all these lights and and camera people and you've got to keep stopping and starting and so on. So acting as if no one is there when there are lots of other people there. It's kind of weird. Now, in plays, it's a little bit different, right? So in in plays, you have to um, pretend that other people aren't there in order to act in a natural manner. But at the same time, you have to know that they are there. So if you're doing comedy, uh, like I was in a Chekhov play called The Bear where I was did a, a comic role, you also have to measure your speech, uh, your, your, your language based upon the audience's laugh, right? Right. Right, so you, you don't want to keep speaking until the laugh has died down a bit. So you have to pretend that they're not there to act in a natural manner, right, but right. you also have to you also have to know that they are there, mm-hmm. so that you can measure and meet, moderate your performance based upon what works and what doesn't. Right. Right. So there's some response with with theater actors as opposed to uh, screenplay actors. I mean, they got you know, a bunch of props and maybe some people around, but all the people who are around screen actors are sort of invested in what the actor's doing anyway. They're sort of there yeah, for yeah. the movie. Right. Yeah. They're there enthusiastically, you know, it's got to, it's got to work. Right. 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 And so there is, there is a very interesting and important thing. Now, have you ever had it where you, um, are in a public place and you burst into tears? Uh, luckily that's never happened. Yeah. Yeah. Now you said luckily, right? <laughs> now, if you were an actor, you'd say, I'm shitty at crying. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. No, this is a very important distinction because for you and you know, maybe me, too. I mean, in public space, half the time I'm bursting into tears during these shows, right? But, <laughs> but, but for most people, sort of being vulnerable, being emotional is something that we avoid that, right? Like, uh, but on the other hand, if you do it on screen or on stage, it's considered to be amazing. Right, the sociopathy. Powerful acting, right? It's sort of, yeah, it's sort of a, a praised or, or reinforced, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. So, and so I think... Yeah, I mean, last, last Tango in Paris, last Tango in Paris, um, Marlon Brando is, is gives the speech by, uh, by the, I think, his dead wife or something like that. And, and it's, it's incredible. I mean, the man is, is staggeringly uh, 
I don't know, even a gifted talent. Who knows what to call it? But he's an incredible actor. And, of course, a, compl- and a completely he- miserable and fucked up human being. I mean, one kid committed suicide. Another kid murdered someone. I mean, he gained 9,000 pounds. And, I mean, he was just a – I mean, watch a Connie Chung interview with him. It's like watching an asteroid orbit Jupiter. And uh, so, I mean, he was a – you know, I, I, and I've read his autobiography years ago. An incredibly messed up woman uh, – sorry, messed up guy who had incredible problems with women as a result of his mom. I can't imagine what that would be like. But apparently it's tough. So uh, so there is – a, a kind of dichotomy in in the mind of the actor, in my experience, and you know, please understand, my experience is <laughs> scarcely authoritative. But you have to be aware of the audience and act as if they're not there. But at the same, and you also have to have, like, if you're if you're acting in a large theater space, um, I acted in a theater space uh, which held twenty five hundred people, and if you act in a large theater space. You don't. You're not mic'd, right? So, you, you know, if you're doing musicals, you have to usually be mic'd because you can sing, sing that loud without blowing your voice up. Right. Up. But you also then have to have tender love scenes where you're yelling at someone, <laughs> basically, right? Like I, I remember, I remember going with um, uh, the actor who was in my class. His name's Rick Roberts. This is a, actually a very good actor, and um, we went to go and visit – we all went to go and visit Stratford, which is, you know, the sort of holy grail of Canadian acting, I guess, for whatever that's worth. And we were uh, practicing, you know, speaking on the stage. I remember Rick was saying, you know, he said, you know, this is like – he said, I can't quite get used to this. And he actually ended up doing a lot more film work and, and you know, very well too. But he said, I just can't get used to this, that you're, you know, <laughs> you're talking to someone and having some sort of intimate scene and you're making sure – that you know the hearing impaired grandma in row three hundred can hear you as well, and he said that's just <laughs> weird, and it is. Yeah. So there is a lot of splitting uh, that goes on where you kind of have opposing things. You have to be speaking somebody tenderly in a scene where your voice is not loud and doesn't sound to be loud. It's audible to everyone, but it's supposed to be an intimate conversation. Like it's fucked up in a lot of ways. There's a lot of. Uh, splitting that, it's a lot that of, goes on. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, lots of lots of fucked up things that go on uh, in in the minds of uh, of actors, and um, I, I I don't know the degree to which that comes from a very healthy and integrated place. I mean, I've thought you know often in the years since, right? I you know whether I should have continued the work in acting uh, that I did uh, or playwriting or whatever. I'm you know satisfied i'm very sort of happy with the decisions that i make like i sort of listen to some of my speeches back that i spontaneously give in this show and i'm like i don't think i would have been that great a vessel for other people's words if i have this many of my own that are useful so i'm glad and i i I was thinking the other day just sort of by the by i can't imagine any other gig (laughs) to put it you know, in a weird way. I can't think of any other gig where I would have this kind of opportunity to speak in this kind of way. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, if I were doing improv, like in, I did lots of improv in theater school, if I were doing improv, then it would all have to be funny, right? And I, you know, some of the stuff I do is funny, but, you know, it's obviously with a lot of underlying seriousness to it. Mm-hmm. And so I couldn't do philosophical rants if I were doing improv. 
I couldn't do philosophical rants if I was an actor in someone else's play because they kind of want their lines to be said, right? Right, right, right. I'm going to break off from Hamlet a little bit here to deliver a discourse on Descartes (laughs) or lawyers. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I couldn't – sorry, I just finished up and I say – I couldn't couldn't have done what I do now in any other venue than how I'm doing it and, and what I'm doing. If I had a newscast, if I had a TV show, if I like, I simply couldn't. I guess Rick Mercer is a Canadian comedian who does these kind of rants and all that, but um, this is not. I couldn't do what I'm doing in any other venue or any other environment or any other kind of interaction than what I do as I do it in the here and now in this show. This to me is, again, and I thank all the donors who've made this possible. I thank you and everyone who calls in for making this possible, for giving me this, this platform and this interaction to be able to do this. Um, it's that there's, there's no other way I could get the language within me across, you know, and I tried, I tried poetry, I tried playwriting, I did acting, I did improv, did a little bit of stand-up, uh, I did uh, novel writing, I like seven novels and shit like that, I did like 30 plays and stuff, right? It was never what I needed, it was never what I wanted, it was, I never felt like I was really stretching my capacities as a human communicator. What I do here, right, the participation of you and, and, and Mike and Stoyan and, and other people, this is – I'm right. I'm always at the edge. of <laughs> always at the edge of what I could do. And I think that's why people keep listening because every time I'm like, well, that was really good. Uh, go move the goalpost. Move the go- not doing enough. Not doing enough. Not doing enough. Do more. Do more. Do more. That's what keeps it interesting and exciting for me. Like I don't want to do the same thing over and over again. And I just was thinking the other day, like if I had stayed as an actor, eh, I could have done okay as an actor, I think. Um, if I had been a playwright, well, you know, playwrights generally starve, but I could have done okay as a playwright except – you know, all the rational, non-lefty stuff would have been real tough to get across in the art world. Art world is relentlessly, particularly in Canada, relentlessly left-wing. Like, just, oh my god. <laughs> like, when we first went to theater school, we were all sitting there in the director of the theater school's office, and he said, well, you all seem pretty young, white, and bourgeois to me, which is short for bourgeoisie, bourgeois, which yeah. means that he's, yeah, like he's a leftist and a communist and all this sort of crap. I don't know about communist, but certainly a leftist. Into Brecht and, you know, all these, and Brecht was one of the most hideous human beings who ever lived, let alone an artist. But, um, so anyway, I just sort of point that out and thank you. So no, I, I, I know I, a little bit about the, the the lawyer stuff and the lawyer stuff I just sort of mentioned very briefly because we started, and let you have the last word, we started with sort of lawyers and police, um, I I don't think if I were a lawyer, I think it would really torture me to say to people, plea bargain for what you didn't do because the system will fuck you if you don't. I think that would be – like I, I don't know. I could not live with myself. I could not live with myself. I mean when you're nagging mankind with moral advice, <laughs> you have to be careful enough. Right. And I have not done anything that has violated my conscience. And I, I sort of have an active relationship with my conscience. Like I'll definitely say we're doing okay, but I also let my conscience slap me upside the head. And so far we've had a, a good ride. <laughs> Doesn't mean I haven't made mistakes, but you know I haven't uh, done anything that has given me uh, great and terrible horror in, in my conscience. But I think if I had a, a, as a job mm-hmm. saying to people who I genuinely or – believed or, or believed there was a reasonable possibility that they were entirely innocent, 
And I was saying to that person, take the hit, take the sentence, take the guilty plea. Because if you don't, I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, the state's going to screw you either way. Yeah, and uh, or, or anyway. And, and that's the thing is I don't, I don't think lawyers, they don't conceptualize it that way. They don't see it that way. They don't – so – They do. It's, they do. Well, no, deep, deep down they do. Deep down. But they're just able to ignore that. And then that's what I was – that's sort of why I, I brought in the, the sociopathy with the – just sort of being able to distance themselves like uh, morally. Yes, yeah, like the cops. Like the, the cops – you know, every cop I'm sure has sent someone to prison who was innocent. And sometimes they even know it. I'm not saying it's that often. I don't know. But you hear about these things, you know, where they falsified evidence and they cooked up their testimony and they sent this guy to jail and this and that and the other, right? Well, they fabricated their police report like what happened with my case, so – Okay, fabricated police report. Now, I would not be able to put my head down on my pillow without thinking about the poor bastard in jail. <laughs> because you have a soul, yes. Well, I, I think a conscience. I think some, some empathy. Like, I would be like, oh, my God, how terrible would that be? Like, I, I, would, I would sit there, you know, oh, man, the guy's been in jail for three days. Like, how's he? Like, I would be torn up inside. I'd be thinking about him all the time. I wouldn't be able to rest. I wouldn't be able to sleep. I'd feel like shit if I'm out there enjoying myself because I put a guy in prison who didn't deserve to be there. But I assume that the cops who do this, and I'm not saying they're in the majority at all, but the cops who do this sail on with their lives. And they just justify it to themselves, uh, you know, at night or, or in their own head. And, and you know, I think, I think that's sociopathy in, in its yeah, and look, form. Yeah, I think, and I think I'll have to amend – motion to amend, Your Honor. I think we'll have to amend my earlier statement where I said deep down they know it. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I have, I have in my personal life confronted people who I suspect of having no conscience and seen enormous pain in them. Mm -hmm. But then it kind of seals up and they move on and then it just doesn't get referenced again. So I don't know. I don't know if there's like – I'm obviously not a Christian, so I don't believe there's a soul that survives well, no matter what. Mm -hmm. But I, So I don't know if there is a pain or not. I don't know if there is a pain deep down it's or not. Hard, it's, it's just really hard to tell, and that's why it's such an interesting connection to me. And I just realized – just you know, in, la in watching the last few videos that you posted, you, this, there's been a lot of discourse lately just about lawyers and attorneys in general and, and uh, you know, like uh, – uh, you were talking to Joe Joseph Sorge, Sorge or whatever about uh, the divorce court thing, and uh, how networks will 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 sue so that they don't uh, appear, uh, you know, um, so that they don't make judges look like, um, uh, you know, look like fools, basically. For, for yeah, the judges are always perfect. Yeah, judges are always perfect, and judges are always right because entertainment companies spend so much time in court that they don't want to bias lawyer, judges against them, which again just shows you that it's a completely subjective process. Right. Absolutely. And, and so I just think, like, again, just sort of ties in with the, with the sociopathy and, and lawyers being up in front of the judge like, like actors almost. And they literally practice things, these things. And I think that's why aspiring actors are such, make such good lawyers and vice versa, because they're able to distance themselves morally um, and, and, and intellectually uh, from reality and from truth, and they can just sort of justify all these things because oh, this is this is the play that I'm in. This is this is the movie that I'm playing in right now. 
even though it's it's killing and the, you. the people are yeah the people are pawns not i mean it's always sort of struck me that that lawyers seem to me like chess players more than human beings right because you know you win some you lose some it's like well you're talking about people's lives here i mean they're not pawns they're people right I mean, like military generals, right? They try and win the war, and the generals, you know, the maps move from side to side, and the, you know, the, they've got these little markers and pins and stuff. It's like they're they're people. Yeah, it's not a game. And, it's not a game of yeah, risk. It's not a game. It's it's, it's, it's not risking, a game. It's risking people's lives. Yeah. So I I think that um, to practice, I think that lawyers in a free society would be a very honorable profession, and you know, and, and there could be you know hero lawyers who help keep people away from bad things and so on but uh, you know again just i know more about the uh, u.s system than anything else and and precious little about that to obviously be clear but it just seems to me man if 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 95 percent of people never get their day in court it's not like 95 percent of people who are charged are guilty for heaven's sakes i mean cops got their numbers to make too right and that, of course, is a terrible system where you have quotas. It's also terrible, of course, as has happened in some places in the U.S. where judges are found to have financial interest in the prisons they send convicts to. Um, and that's just, I mean, unbelievable. I mean, they, they have been punished, I think, for that. Uh, but um, I just – I could not get involved in a system where I was facilitating uh, such vast human destruction. I, I just – I. I just can't think of any amount of money that would ever make that worthwhile. Well, I would um, because I never, think I hope that would yeah. never be a choice that you would have to make. Obviously, and oh no, I know I'd, I'd rather work at Starbucks than yeah. anything <laughs> like that. I mean, I you know, and, just, and you yeah. use the word hero correctly uh, when you were speaking earlier about lawyers in the future or future DRO agents because these people would be um, morally accountable for the actions. So they truly, oh, yeah. if you charge, I mean, I think that that there used to be a common law practice that if I charge you. And my charge fails, I get the sentence. Yeah, yeah. Like so, I mean, if if um, a woman charges a man with rape and the charge fails, she gets the sentence he would have gotten. And that is, of course, designed to discourage um, uh, false accusations. Right. And um, everyone, like, if if you have a system where everyone can't get their day in court, and where you are completely terrified of explaining the legal system to young, right? Ignorance of the law is no excuse, but nobody can know the law, and it's never explained to children. I mean, how how ridiculous is that, right? It's ridiculous, and like I said, we get hurled into this. We get hurled into this world when we're eighteen, and it's kind of just like, you know, I mean, my parents were very old-fashioned in that sense. They just, you know, I was cut off financially when I was about sixteen, seventeen, uh, and then pretty much uh, I moved on to college when I was about eighteen. So. You know, it was, uh, you know, they just kind of boot you into this world. And there's just this thing called the state that you you never really learn about. You just learn about the history of, of how it's been horrible to people. And and, and then uh, this, these things. No, no. But the important thing is that, you know, all about the War of 1812 and the British North American Act and all that. Because what's legal and illegal and how the law works. Why would right. you need to know that? Right. The important thing is to know how Indians built their goddamn teepees. It's just ridiculous. And uh, it's really something to be ridiculed, like literally ridiculous. It's it's um, it's really sad that we're whirled into this uh, into this uh, statist kind of a world, and um, that uh, it's it's just something that I noticed, and I I it's it's really discouraging. I have a little brother; he's 15. You know, he's in high school. He's going to be getting his own job pretty soon. He's going to be you know, a couple of years hurled out into the same world as me. And I want to be able to tell him, I want to be able to educate him. Hey, 
there's a monster out there that you're going to have to avoid. Uh, you're, that you're going to have to work yourself around. And mm-hmm. if you come in contact with one of its tentacles, you know, it's, uh, you better know what you're talking about and you better know, you better know the law. And you better not talk. Yeah. And, right. and people like Mark J. Victor, who's, I'm, I'm from Arizona, which is as statist of a state as they come. And, uh, it's, uh, people like him are great because they go around teaching these things to college kids who need to learn these, um, you know, these lines to, to spit out at these cops when, whenever they pull you over. And, um, I'm sure you've heard Mark J. Victor's speeches before. Yeah, I think yeah. we've done a couple of speeches and well, not speeches together. We've done a couple of shows together, right. and um, yeah, I think he's very heroic. Uh, he's a, a, a lawyer who you know really does help people stay out of the clutches of the state. He's he's great. Um, so anyway, I just I kind of want to point it out. And my last question is, I guess um, I I don't know if we we're we we're strapped for time, but uh, why we are we are we are <laughs> no, and well, it, it can be very quick, but it's for, been yeah, almost real, a four hour show. And, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, real quick, uh, why haven't you done a TED talk? Why on earth would I be invited to do a TED talk? They're not, they're <laughs> I, not crazy, right? <laughs> I don't know. Are, did they just seem to – are they too liberal of an uh, – did they have too liberal of an agenda for you? Or I think you'd be great up on stage talking at one of those TED conferences and spreading knowledge about Bitcoin and, and anarchy. I think it would be great. Well, I, I mean I appreciate that and uh, I, I would be great. I, I, I'm not going to disagree with you. I, I know my strengths and my weaknesses. Um, I'm an indifferent karaoke singer but I'm great at speaking about ideas on the stage. But uh, no, I, I mean, if I were them, I wouldn't. I mean, <laughs> I mean, they've had, not, some, pretty, not, they've had yeah. some pretty radical people on there. I mean, uh, not quite as radical as you, maybe, but uh, I think that that crowd uh, has something to learn, and uh, I, I think that it's. Uh, I, th- I just, like I said, I think you do great on stage talking to those people and really turning their heads and raising their eyebrows at Bitcoin and anarchy and moral philosophy and all this. So. Well, I appreciate that, and uh, I certainly would not object to the opportunity, but I am certainly not uh, holding my breath, and I don't think it's particularly necessary. The show is growing uh, very well uh, without it, and uh, I certainly would be interested. But um, we've—I mean, we've had TED, TEDx invites uh, to to go and speak uh, at TEDx, uh, and uh, you know, at some point, one of those will coincide with what we want to do, and we'll sort of go from there. But uh, I appreciate that, um, but. I don't think it's particularly necessary, and um, I think that uh, the they 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 would be it would be a challenge for them in terms of controversy, and uh, you know I, I don't know what the cost benefit would be like for them, um, but I haven't seen too many really radical people do TED talks. Maybe I've just missed them uh, that are out there. I hear but, you. Um, I think they've had people go up on there about uh, talking about Bitcoin already, um, but just nothing nothing to the theme of, of, of what you would be able to tell them. Just nothing. It's just, oh, it's this new thing and it's everybody should, you know, look into it and with you, it's like... Well, that's legal, right? Bitcoin is, is all perfectly legal. Uh, but as far as I understand it, TEDx doesn't do politics. They don't do religion. Mm. So... <laughs> yeah. And, you know, ethical philosophy would have to talk about politics uh, and, and epistemological philosophy would have to talk about religion as would metaphysical philosophy. And, uh, of course, political philosophy they don't do, so um, unless they wanted to do bomb in the brain stuff. But if they wanted to do bomb in the brain stuff, they wouldn't hire – they wouldn't get a podcaster out there, right? They'd get a, 
uh, an accredited expert, which you know would obviously make sense in a lot of ways. So, and what are they going to do? Get like men's rights activists out there? <laughs> yeah, I'll be I'll be waiting for that to happen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Emma Watson's busy. Oh, uh, let's get uh, Paul Elam because <laughs> yeah. you know both sides of the coin is important, right? Yeah, right. I'll be waiting for that. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't I don't think it's a particularly good fit, and and I want to you know, reach the people who are going to go as much of the distance as philosophy as they can. And uh, I think that a lot of the people who are the audience for the TEDx, are, you know, pretty comfortable professionals. And uh, I just don't think that they would have much uh, interest in something which, you know, challenged the paradigm, not just of any particular part of their world, but of their entire world. So, and, you know, this is my thoughts on it. I haven't really given much thought to it, but uh, um, we're pretty selective about speaking engagements now. They're pretty, pretty time consuming. And, um, in the time it takes to give one half-hour speech, I could do like five or ten shows. So, um, you know, what has more reach and more potential to get more people? And and the the, the, the speeches that I give, you know, I think what do we get like maximum seventy thousand views. But I could do you know something. I can whip off something on something else that might get half a million views. So uh, the cost benefit is not great. We're just really focused on whatever can get philosophy into the hands of more people. And um, so. Uh, I don't know if it's that great a fit, and I, you know, certainly be happy to chat with them should it ever come to that. But uh, I'm certainly not holding my breath or or looking for opportunities. I hear you. I hear you. Well, YouTube is certainly a, a fantastic way to do it. YouTube itself is just amazing. This technology that we have. I mean, you were yeah, sort of talking really about it earlier. It's just fantastic. I mean, there's never been anything like it, and um, it's a great. for mankind. <laughs> Yeah, that's the that's the plan, right? Take on the Bob Marley thing. He's playing for mankind. That's why he yeah. was able to write such great shows. And I'm playing for mankind, and I'm playing for all time. And uh, that's what helped drive the metaphor engine. And my metaphor engine runs on greed and terror. And uh, greed for audience and uh, terror at the world not getting more moral uh, generally tends to get the friction of my matches going with fire. So, so listen, thanks a lot for calling in. Thanks, everyone, so much, of course, for your continued support. Uh, and uh, dare I say affection for the show and uh, as usual I end with the request for you to step up not man up (laughs) but step up to uh, help support the show at fdrurl.com slash donate it is uh, essential for our motivation for the growth of the show for all of the endless equipment that seems to be needed to run this uh, I guess fairly sophisticated operation now so fdrurl.com slash donate thank you so much everyone who calls in We will talk to you soon.